Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and honor, as always, to welcome a U.S. Navy SEAL graduated Bud's Class 215, was it SEAL Team 5, served with the 19th Group Special Forces Reserve Unit out of Watkins, Colorado, was a contractor for Dynacor and a host of other companies at the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and then came back home and continued to serve with the Phoenix Police Department for eight years as a patrol officer and undercover narcotics officer. Please welcome to the Mike Drop podcast, Clark W. Griswold Imposado. <laughs> Thanks for having me, brother. This is awesome. No, man, it's a, it's a, an absolute honor and a pleasure having you here. Um, little backstory for the guests. Clark and I graduated buds together. And, uh, you know, we're obviously tight teammates back then. Um, you know, we've always been kind of, you know, good friends, but just have, have lost contact over the last number of years. So I, I haven't talked to Clark uh, in quite a while. Um, and And so half of this podcast is kind of chronologically delving into his story, uh, which is a, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's for sure a, a type of story that, uh, that's, you know, a, an occurrence that happens with, uh, you know, a fair bit of regularity for guys like us that when they get out, you know, they, they continue to, to serve in a host of different capacities, whether it's with contracting groups, whether it's with police departments or a mix of the two, like in this case, um, and, and to me, you know, because that's such a, a recurring theme that, that happens, you know, I, I want to let you guys in on it and kind of, you know, see what, what happens with a lot of these guys, um, you know, no different than me. And that, you know, when you, when you have a skill set that's very, very particular and very specific, not to sound like the fucking movie taken, <laughs> you know, you've got a <laughs> specific set of skills, uh, you know, but, but the fact is, is there's not a lot of transferable, um, jobs out there or careers that's like yeah we need people that uh, you know can go be fucking violent at the drop of a hat you know and, and be accepted by society and so you know th this is a fairly common um experience for guys getting out and and i would say that you know of all the guys that i keep in touch with most of them have similar stories and and uh you know without a doubt to me it's fascinating and i think it's important for you as the listener 
you know, to, to be able to kind of delve into, um, you know, both the psyche, the mentality, the experience that happens for, you know, for lack of better terms, train fucking killers once they get out of the military. Like, what what do these guys do? And this is what a lot of guys do. And uh, and it's it's really, really important work. Uh, and it's fucking exciting and interesting. There's a lot of uh, pretty, pretty nutty stories to uh, to go over, um, you know, that, that happened, uh, you know, post nine 11. So we're going to get into to all this stuff. Uh, but what, what the other half of this podcast is, is, is Clark and I catching up, um, you know, which again, you know, the personalities that, uh, that I think you run into a lot of times in, in special operations, obviously specifically as it relates to the seal teams is very, very unique in terms of kind of a bullshit session that uh, that we would go through if we haven't seen each other in a while and, and kind of catching up so it'll be kind of a mix of those two things uh, i think you guys are going to enjoy it and i'm uh, i'm happy and honored to bring it to you without further ado we're going to get right into it and uh one of the things i do like to do is a, uh, what i call the lightning round uh, which is where i, I catch you with your pants <laughs> down a little bit and, and ask you some stupid ass questions but just you know, get your brain thinking and uh, and working, and then also I just uh, I like fucking with people. So um, the first question is a little bit serious, just in terms of morning routine. Now I know, you know, with with our backgrounds, a lot of times, I mean, I get asked all the time, like, do what do you do first thing in the morning? I'm curious. I, I like to ask, you know, all the guests, like, you know, tell me about your morning routine. Like, what do you do when you first get up? Yeah, typical morning for me. It's it's pretty consistent. I usually get up about seven o'clock. Um, my coffee is pre-workout, so I'll take some <laughs> no explode and, uh, get the engine revved up. And then, uh, recently I'm about eight months into playing guitar. So I'll spend an hour in the morning. First thing. First thing. I just love it. I've always, uh, been interested in it and, uh, I picked it up recently. And so part of my routine is no matter what happens in the work day or afterwards, I at least get an hour in. So a little pre-workout and, uh, about an hour on guitar and then start getting ready for work. Do you find that uh, that the pre workout makes the shredding better? I mean, like as it's kicking in and you're fucking getting <laughs> yeah. after, like are you, are you just uh, it does some fucking some dime bag uh, yeah solos or what? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I'm discovering some of the secrets of rock and roll. I can't yeah. quite partake in, but pre workout's <laughs> close enough. So uh, yeah, man, it revs you up. The uh, I start to play some of the earlier Metallica stuff. <laughs> yeah, the heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, one of the things that Clark uh, Clark does now, which we'll get into, but uh, you know, teaches tactics and, and shooting for a host of different uh, military and law enforcement uh, and civilians. Um, you know, kind of utilizing all of his skill sets. But uh, you know, anybody that's been in the military or done contracting or both, I always like to ask, you know, what what is your favorite pistol? I know, like with me, like I have a, a bunch, but there's there's one in particular. Like you have to pick one. What is your favorite pistol? Yeah, this bad boy right here, the Sig P320. I'm in love with it, man. Oh, shit. Uh, what what is it about it that you like above everything else? Well, as you know, uh, I was raised in the teams with the 226. Didn't have a lot of firearms experience prior to that, so I was just kind of partial to that platform. But being left-handed. All the controls are set up for mm-hmm. right-handed shooter. I'm left-handed. Oh, you know my struggle then, bro. I we speak it. the same language. So it. we had to Jimi Hendrix some shit. You know what I mean? I, <laughs> I, and I think I became a better shooter um, than average because I had to, to figure things out. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to spend more time back, you know, in the room, whatever. You, same thing yeah, for you, I'm sure. A 60. So, yo, yeah, I was a 60 gunner too. I, yeah. I, uh, yeah, had to employ that right-handed because it ejects brass backwards. But, yeah. uh, so yeah, anyway, SIG, I was kind of partial to, uh, but throughout my career, 
we switched to Glock. So uh, we were training some law enforcement cats at executive protection stuff. And one of them had the new 320. So I said, hey, do you mind if I shoot that? And I was so impressed. You didn't give it back. No, pretty much. In <laughs> fact, I said, oh, I got to get one. He said, hey, that dude over there sells them. And I, I broke out the credit card. And I'm, right then I, I got it. Yeah. Um, but the simplicity of it, the accuracy of it, um, it's got ambi controls. Yeah. I can switch it out and stuff. So really, to me, it was a game changer. Prior to that, when I got into the teaching side of things, I was using a SIG 229 which yeah. is the shorter version of yeah. what we carried. Um, still a fan of that, but I enjoyed that it was a consistent trigger squeeze. You didn't have the double action, single action thing. And so yeah. the simplicity and accuracy, I was sold, man. Shoot I love it. it. I still shoot it to this day. I mean, it's... Yeah. Well, after after we get a few more beers in, we'll have to take it out and shoot, you know, because yeah. that, that always mixes really well, drinking and shooting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the neighbors <laughs> are going to love us, man. <laughs> I definitely, before you uh, before you leave here, I'm going to have to check that shit out. But yeah, uh, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, dovetailing onto that. I have to ask too, what is your favorite defensive round for all you gun nuts out there? And even if you're not, um, you know, just as kind of a quick uh, precursor is that, you know, there's a lot of different rounds out there and, and, you know, people talk about ballistics and stopping power and things of that nature, but I have my preferences, but I'm curious to see or, or hear your take on what, uh, what round do you like to use when you're carrying concealed? If, you know, somebody is rolling up to your window and you want to put a, put a fucking barn door in their spine, what, uh, what do you like to roll with in that? Yeah, nowadays I'm a nine mil dude. Yeah. Um, when I was on the streets with Phoenix, it was a 45. I carried a Glock 21. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of of that old school mentality of, you know, the big caliber, the right. big, dumb, slow bullet and all that stuff. But because I trained it, it kind of started out as a, a cost saver. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> buying lots of nine mil is, is cheaper than 45. Yeah. Um, but I am a big believer for me. It's it's all nine mil now, which is yeah. very common to our, our roots and the teams. Mm-hmm. It's shot placement. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's one thing I've always. I mean, I get asked all the time too, like, mm-hmm. you know, what do you like? What do you carry? Whatever. And and to me, you know, ballistically, you know, whether you're shooting a twenty two or a forty five seventy, like if it's going where it needs to yeah. go, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. But on the transverse, is if you're missing, guess what? It doesn't matter either. You know. Yeah, so I, exactly. I, I'm the same way. I mean, I carry a nine. I mean, I'm a I'm a Glock 19 guy. But mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, same thing. Like I I shoot the nine all day long. I mean, I have some 45s and some. You know, I have a you know a couple 357s and 357 sigs. I don't like the 40. Yeah. But uh, the the other thing I'm curious, not just caliber, but actual you know brand of defensive round that you like. Do you have a preference or you just? Not really. I think in there I have. Uh... I want to say it's Winchester. It's a bonded hollow points. Yeah. So they hold together a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I'm not super into, you know, the ammunition technology has come so far with all the yeah. plus P and different things like that. So yeah. um, pretty much just buy a good name brand. Yeah. You know. Yeah, thing. I mean, to me, I like I like the spear gold dots for that, mm-hmm. for that reason. They're a good bonded, you know, hollow, uh, hollow point. But the... I'd say probably the one that I, I roll with almost all the time is uh, is the Federal HST, which is yeah. it's a jacketed hollow point, but it's I've done a fair bit of testing with it, and, and uh, I've never had any any uh, failure where any of the pedals are coming off, or it's you know splitting up in, in gel blocks or frozen sides of fucking beef or turkeys or whatever. Even in water, it does it does well, but um, I, I really like that round. But yeah, I agree. I mean, shit, there's so many out there that uh, it's it's hard to. Hard to even know what to pick, but uh, that's definitely what I like. Um, yeah, definitely. What's your favorite cut of meat? And that's beef, goddamn it. <laughs> favorite cut if of meat. If you tell me you're a pescatarian, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop the interview. 
right, well, it's been nice seeing you, bro. <laughs> yeah, I only eat fish. Sorry, buddy. I'm no. talking out of here. Yeah, I don't know that I have a favorite cut. I'm just a huge fan of beef in general. I love yeah. steaks. Just, yeah, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I think I've just lived in enough foreign countries. I'll kind of eat what's available, you know. I'm <laughs> yeah. a bit of a survivalist when it comes to cuisine, but just yeah. a good uh, just right. a good cut of beef, man. Well, we're going to have some uh, some ribs that we showed you here earlier, some beef ribs that are kind of my specialty, but uh, we'll see what you think of those here in a bit. Nice. Um, most embarrassing moment as a seal. Oh, yeah, dude. That's <laughs> So we were Birdless Wonders doing platoon support out at Nyland. Yeah. And uh, there were four of us new guys. And so we had 12-hour shifts, and we decided we were going to take the day shift, even though it was hotter, because we wanted to go out into Brawley and drink and, you know, be goofballs. <laughs> so we were on some makeshift, you know, target site, and we knew there were snipers watching us. So me and my buddy, we decided that we were going to do patrols naked. So we had our boots, boonies. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's when I started my uh, Magic Mike career, apparently. <laughs> a lot of nudity in the teams. I'm sure we're going to cover a lot of that here in a while. Man. But uh, so, yeah, I was naked with my AK boonie and boots <laughs> and I was doing jumping jacks and clowning around and giving the snipers something to, you know, hopefully laugh at or whatever. And this van comes around these little hills, you know, the chocolate mountains out there. And I thought it was the dude that was kind of taking care of us. And uh, sure as shit, it was his van. But as it got closer, I noticed there was someone in the passenger seat. And I was like, oh, shit. It was the CO of five. I was like, he gets out of the passenger side. I'm like, oh, fuck. Are you kidding me, dude? You know, you're still yeah. a birdless wonder. You're yeah. still in no man's land. You ain't, yeah. you ain't there yet. Yeah. So he gets out, calm as a cucumber, comes right up to me. And I'm kind of at a modified position of attention. I just kind of stand up straight. And so I'm you, like, so oh, you had shit. a heart on? Is that what you're saying? It was a semi. <laughs> it could, I wanted to, but I was nervous. So... <laughs> He calm as, calm as a cucumber. He walks up to me and he goes, are you in Pistato? And I was like, yes, sir. He goes, did you study Japanese in college? I was like, yes, sir. He goes, you want to learn Korean? I'm like. <laughs> Naked? Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I said, yes, sir. And he walks away. And I was like, does this dude know I'm naked? And he gets about five feet from me and he just turns back and he goes, uh, you show up to class wearing some clothes, you know, because <laughs> they sent us to San Diego State to learn Korean, which was Holy a mistake. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I was so nervous. And so for the rest of my time there, I could never make eye contact with the dude, man. I was always embarrassed. Like, Jesus Christ. Now he, now he knows the truth about the Tic Tac, you know. <laughs> I think he always felt sorry for me. Oh, God damn, that's fucking great. <laughs> and then, you know, there's about 30 other stories equally as uh, ridiculous that uh, that we'll get into here with some of our experiences at Bud's with the, the ghost masturbator and all that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you didn't think I, you, I you were hoping I didn't remember that shit. Right, no, yeah. We're, yeah, we're covering that. Oh, <laughs> you better believe we're getting I forgot into, about that. Yeah, yeah, well, I didn't, but... so that's, uh, that's good news. I hope my mom's not <laughs> listening. I'm sorry, Mom. <laughs> oh, Christ. Uh, what's your favorite Kool-Aid flavor? Watermelon. Watermelon. God damn. Yeah, man. All right. Um, best hazing story ever. Man. Best hazing story. Like my hazing or just the hazing that happened in the I platoon? Mean, shit, whatever, whatever strikes you as being like, you know what, that's the best <laughs> hazing story I've ever come across. I mean, that you were either, in, either being hazed or doing it, but. 
Well, yeah, my hazing was typical. I was naked, duct taped in a 69 position. There it is, um, naked again. It, there's a lot of nudity in the teams. Yeah. Um, the, the the odd part about that is they put us in the meat locker out there at Nyland in the kitchen. <laughs> no pun, and, no well, pun intended. The meat locker, right? Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of meat. Well, they forgot about us, and they actually came in concerned like an hour later, like, oh, shit, are these dudes frozen together? You know, <laughs> little popsicles in the 69. Um, but the, it was it was a funny one, but it was a little bit scary as they uh, obviously they they duct taped this dude naked to a chain link fence, and it was his twenty first birthday, so they yeah. decided to give him a twenty one bun salute with simunition, <laughs> and they let those sim rounds rip on this dude's butt cheeks. But you know what sims do to you, especially twenty one of them in an area, and we were all like, oh, like everybody was frozen, like uh, <laughs> oh, oh shit. shit. It fucked them up, huh? That was bad, dude. We were all like little kids where you throw the rock through the neighbor's window and you freeze, like, oh shit. So that was uh, that was one that stands out for sure, man. Oh fuck. There's a million of them. (laughs) Fucking million of them. Um, I I have to ask, and and this is this is one of the more serious questions. What is your favorite cheese? Ooh. I love cheese, man. Yeah, who doesn't? I, I try to stay away from it because uh, my dad bod's in full effect. But <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my favorite cheese? I just like a good mild cheddar, man. It's, right? it's kind of ghetto, but yeah, just I mean, that's pretty basic. It, I, like, I know, thought you were more refined than that. No, man, that's it? nothing fancy not here. Smoked man. gouda or fucking camembert, like just, no <laughs> mild <right>. mild cheddar. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Sorry, dude. Right, fucking keeping it real. All right, nothing wrong with it. I could buy it in bulk. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking government will hand the shit out. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah, free. It's fucking free. <laughs> fucking wheel of cheese. Um, all right. So last lightning round question. Uh, what book are you currently reading? And if there isn't one, what's the last one you read? The last book I read was actually. Uh, you mean you're not currently reading? No, I've been on the road, man. <laughs> hey, it's no excuse. <laughs> I know. Uh, the last one was uh, the Admiral's book, Make Your Bed. No, oh, yeah, McRaven. <laughs> yeah, no that was awesome. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I feel guilty like that dude's watching. <laughs> Guess what I do every morning? Swear to God, yeah. I make my bed because I'm like, I'd somehow he knows, dude. Cre- creepy Uncle Mar- McRaven. Yeah, over shoulder, Uncle making- McRaven's like, did you make your bed? And I just, I can't lie to him. And so I, dude, seriously, after I read that book, I'm like, you know, he's right. At least yeah. I will accomplish one yeah. task today. One, one so thing. play a guitar and make my bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, good stuff. So, uh, so you know, now I want to just kind of go down the the roster, if you will, of of your experience and, and delve into, you know, the nuts and bolts of of again the experience, you know, that that so many guys like us can identify with, and and uh, you know that a lot of people are interested in, and I think it's important for them to hear about, uh, you know, what what makes guys like you do what you do, what makes you tick, and then ultimately, you know, what what experiences you've had that uh, that have shaped you into into who you are today. Um, so you you were born in Colorado Springs, um, mm-hmm. which you know when I did the Jay Dobbins interview, the ATF guy, that there's a lot of similarities that I'll that I'll draw from during this interview uh, in terms of some of your experience. But you know, come to find out, when I grew up in Iowa, you know, it was uh, the Sons of Silence, which was a, a big motorcycle gang that, yeah. was, that was prominent in, in Iowa. You know, originated in Colorado Springs. Just real yeah. quick, like, did you ever remember that seeing or hearing about them? No, up? I never saw those dudes, but they were kind of urban legends. Like you knew about them in town, yeah. and yeah. and you always heard about them, and you were kind of like, yeah. oh, but I never came across yeah. them. So I, yeah. I actually lived. 
probably 20, 25 minutes outside the spring. So oh, okay. if, if they came up into my house, they had to have dirt bikes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so probably not. Probably no knobby tires showing yeah. up on the fucking hogs, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so growing up in Colorado Springs, you know, one of the things that uh, that I'm curious about, and, and I know a lot of people ask, you know, me and, and other guys like us, you know, what, what was growing up, just in, in kind of generally speaking, you know, did, was there any sports that you played and excelled at or, um, you know, was there anything that from an athletic standpoint that uh, that you focused on that kind of contributed with physical fitness being as, as important and, and physical prowess being as as necessary as it is in our line of work? Like uh, what, what physical experiences shaped you as a kid growing up uh, prior to joining the Navy? Yeah, when I was a... A, a tiny, tiny kid. Soccer was big, uh, probably part of my Italian heritage. Um, <laughs> but I lost interest in it. You know, I was fairly decent at it. I was left wing. Um, probably around the junior high age, I discovered hockey. Oh, no I sure. played a little pond hockey growing up, but nothing yeah. serious. And just caught the hockey bug. Um, so through junior high and high school, that was my big sport. That I, Of course, I wanted to play for the Bruins and all that shit. That yeah. didn't happen. But <laughs> yeah. So it was those, those were the two main sports. I dabbled a little bit in wrestling, didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, played a little football, peewee football, and I played one season uh, in high school, but didn't just, it wasn't my thing. So it was yeah. soccer as a kid, and then hockey is what I really focused in on. And that's kind of what started to form that team concept and also like a contact sport. It, yeah. it, it really showed me. I was a defenseman, so violence was kind of my. Your lent your, your. I liked it because I didn't currency. have to worry about scoring goals. I just had to fuck that dude up <laughs> scoring the goal. You know, and I was like, I can do this. This is easy. You know. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Hockey is a, is an interesting sport, I think, and and it's one I, I you know similarly like growing up in Northern Iowa. I did a little bit of pond hockey, but mm-hmm. I mean not. I never played in any organized leagues or anything like that. You know, I fell through the ice a couple of times and about shit myself and. Uh, yeah about froze to death but um very limited experience just you know kind of dabbled a little bit but i um, i've always been fascinated like especially with our culture being as fucking emasculated and, and pussified as as it has become that hockey is one of those sports that still allows people to just beat the shit yeah. out of each other and, and like and the crowd goes wild and everybody yeah. loves it and it's like how, how has that managed to slip through i mean i'm, I'm fucking glad that it has yeah you know, but was that obviously that was something that had an impact? Like you know, violence is is kind of the universal language there. Like it is. It's I mean, it's a sport that's that's pretty much based on fucking each other up. You know, and there's mm-hmm. there's some finesse with the skating and, and shooting and stuff, but but a lot of that sport is just pile driving the shit out of each other. It's a ballsy sport, and what I like is uh, I always say it's one of the hardest sports to play because a lot of other sports. Like you're on the ground, you're doing something that's natural. You're running or whatever. Yeah. As soon as you get out on that ice yeah. with your blades, it's like it's a whole new world. So you yeah. got to get good at that. And then as a defenseman, you have to be able to skate backwards yeah. just as good as that dude skates forward. And it, there's it's violent, but there's a lot of skill set involved because you could be bigger and stronger than me, but I'm better on my skates. Yeah. So I can dump you and stuff. And so it's yeah. it's, it's it's kind of like water polo in that way. Mm-hmm. Like you know, the first I know the first times in the in the teams like playing water polo <laughs> or, or fucking underwater hockey. Like, yeah. The team yeah, PTs yeah. like you know the, the the water and the ice are are quite the neutralizer that way. You know, it guys is. that are, are bigger and stronger. Like if you, if you're better on skates or better in the water than them, then then you'll own their ass. You know, but yeah. I just, you know, it's one thing that I really like about hockey is, is uh, you know, it's a fucking man sport where people just, you know, knock the shit out of each other and, and it's cool. Like they're not getting yeah. penalized, being by and large, obviously high sticking and yeah. cheap shots aren't cool. But uh, but like just the mono a mono, like leveling each other. I, I love it. You know, yeah. Right? Typically they'll let it go until one dude overpowers the other dude. Yeah. 
And yeah. so I don't know about nowadays, but it really, to me, it was an introduction to, I hate to use the word violence, but contact. Yeah. And not to be scared of it that, you know, yeah, some, sometimes you're the hammer, sometimes you're the nail, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes you're going to get your lunch handed to you, but you, yeah. you usually, you know, shake hands and hug the dude. It's, yeah. you know, at, at the end of the game, you come out of the locker rooms and be like, dude, you whooped my ass. That was awesome. You know, and the crowd <laughs> goes wild. And so it's kind of yeah. gladiatorial in a way, you know, yeah, sure, but it, yeah. it definitely shaped an early part of my personality to realize not to be, you know, don't be scared, don't be a pussy. All that made sense, but it just that like sometimes this is okay. It's a part of that yeah. community, and so I think that that helped me out in the yeah. military early on. Is that hey, this is a contact sport, this is a blood sport, yeah. and things are going to happen at times. So yeah. even as a kid, I think hockey was very, you know, I, fundamental in that. Yeah, you know, to me, there, there's a there's an element of that that I think is missing uh, in our society by and large, and that. You know, the reality of it is we're all still fucking animals um, mm -hmm. and and violence is a universal language. Like you don't have to speak it. It'll still be spoken to you. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and learning at a, at a young age, you know, let boys be boys. Let them fight. You know, mm -hmm. let them figure shit out on their own because it, it is a it's a necessary skill set. And I think technology has uh, has hindered and blinded human beings to to that fact, you know, because mm -hmm. there's. There, there's not a necessity for it in some aspects of, of our society, but, uh, but there, there needs to be because, you know, the, especially with social media and, and social justice warriors, you know, people that have a real big fucking mouth behind a keyboard, you know, but, you know, won't have that same level of accountability when you're standing in front of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think is, is a detriment to our society. And I think hockey and, 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 you know, some other sports, whether it's MMA or other full contact sports that teaches, you know, combativeness and but respect for an opponent and, and exactly. things of that nature uh, is, is is a big big element of our society that's missing that I, I wish I wish there was more of. But uh, but at any rate, um, you know, it's it's cool to hear that uh, you know that hockey's played such a, an integral part in, in your growing up. I am curious, uh, you know, just like with me, you know, and some of the experiences I had uh, in terms of high school turmoil and things like that. But you know, were there things growing up? that shaped, you know, both who you are and, you know, whether it was relationships, tumultuous relationships with family or, um, you know, anything traumatic or, or anything. Was there any kind of highlight moments uh, growing up that, that impacted you and, and either steered you into service or just, you know, really had a, a prominent impact on, on who you are and, and why you are the way you are? Yeah, I think the number one thing would be my mom. I was raised by a single mom. She raised me and my brother. Um, she never dated you know, she just was a toe in the line. Yeah, stand on her own two feet and make things happen. So I, I saw that as an example of, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, show up to work, handle what you got to do. She tried to fulfill that mother and father role. So as an example, uh, she was huge in my life, but also being raised by a single mom, it kind of gave me a sensitive side to life. Like yeah. I, I kind of, I always say I have a, you know, I'm kind of a crazy dude, but I have a woman's heart. Like I, I understand, I empathize with things. Yeah. So where you, you were trying to hold my hand? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'll be little spoon. <laughs> uh, but definitely that was a, a big thing. Um, but luckily she was a strong woman. She's tough. She's from New York. She's yeah, born she in Manhattan. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I'm still scared of her. I'm scared of like three people. She's one of them. You know yeah, what I mean? That's great shit. And then also we grew up isolated. Like I said, we were probably 20 minutes in the hills. 
Uh, so growing up, there weren't a lot of neighbor kids. Yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, out in the woods playing army guy. Mm-hmm. Ended up growing up to join the Navy, but <laughs> kind of weird. So <laughs> yeah, I would just had my BB gun and I was outside. I mean, I really came in just for, for meal times and just built tree forts. And yeah. I had to kind of create my own scenarios. I had my Australian Shepherd kind of raised me. Yeah. And uh, so my dog and... A BB gun out in the hills, and I, I conquered the world as a kid, you know, or at least, you know, an acre or two, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's your world growing up. You so, know? well, I think those two things really shaped who I was, um, and also kind of growing up, not really lonely, but not growing up with other kids. When it was school time, bro, it was, I was the class clown, obviously. Yeah. And so I was like a little Robin Williams, man. I was entertaining, and yeah. like I just, I, I enjoyed the company of, of, my peers when I had those moments. So yeah, yeah. I think that's, I guess that's three things now. Yeah. I'm not so good at counting, but <laughs> I'm not, not so good on the arithmetic, but uh, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of, yeah, I know for me, like both my grandfathers served in, in world war two. Uh, one was in the army, one was in the Navy. And, and for me, that was like a huge inspiration growing up. You know, they didn't, I didn't really know my dad's dad. I mean, I met him a couple times, but um, he died, you know, when I was a little bit younger, but my, my mom's dad was very influential in my, in my life. And, and, uh, it, you know, he, he wasn't opposed to talking about it, but didn't go out of his way to talk about it. But, mm-hmm. um, but I remember, you know, a number of stories of him talking about being on a minesweeper in world war two and all this other pretty wild shit. But it just, uh, to me, like it was about wanting to, to do my part mm, you know, in terms of serving. But I'm curious, you know, what, what was it that inspired you? As you, uh, you know, going through high school and, and, you know, did you learn about the SEAL teams? Did you, you know, was, was there anything that was kind of intram- instrumental during that period that, that really was kind of that light switch of you saying, you know what, I need to go fucking serve in the military and this is, this is why I'm going to do it? Yeah, definitely. As a kid, my mom, she was part of the World War II generation. So as a kid, we watched a lot of World War II movies. Yeah. Tora, 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 and, you know, Midway and all this stuff. And I always thought, damn, that's just something epic's going on here. Even as a kid, I didn't, I couldn't put, you know, my finger on it, but I knew like, this is, this is something that I could see that greater cause, something bigger than, than one person. So I was always fascinated by it um, until high school when the Gulf War kicked off. And it was uh, when CNN was new and it was 24 hours. I don't think I slept the entire time. I was just glued to the TV (laughs) watching the invasion. And I was like, I got to do this, man. So that was definitely the moment when I said, yeah, I, when I'm done with education, I'm going to do this. No shit. I, yeah. You know what's interesting about that? You know, I'm a, f- a few years younger than you are. You know, for me, I was in junior high. I was in seventh grade. And I remember being scared fucking shitless. Like, it was the opposite of that. You know, mm-hmm. like, I literally, and, and, you know, I'll be the first to admit, like, when that when that went down, like, I, I was glued to the TV, but for the, the opposite reasons. Like, yeah. I, I was like, holy fuck, I hope I never have to go do that. You know, I, there... Like I was scared. I was scared that our country was going to war because you know it was like being born in the late seventies and growing up in the eighties, which was like MacGyver and Knight Rider time of mm-hmm. like just everything was cool, fucking Airwolf and Streethawk and you dude, know like those all are these awesome. badass shows. The A Team, yeah, yeah, dude. You know, but it was like nobody ever really got hurt either. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was like it's true. It was yeah. almost a manufactured, um, yeah. you know, sexiness to it and. And uh, you know, so that that was the first slap in the face for me as a as a you know twelve year old that I was just like, holy shit, like, that's for real. Like, our country's going, yeah. to I hope I never have to do that. And then literally, you know, a couple of years later, it was it was the exact opposite. But, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's neat to hear, you know, the you know the, the inspiration from, from every service member. Because, I mean, the reality of it is, is that, 
there's not not a service member veteran that that exists today that there isn't something like that you know and, yeah. and they're all unique you know everybody has their own path their own story and, and i always love to hear fellow veterans you know upbringings and kind of what what channeled them into into the service and in, in that regard but uh that's a that's neat shit um so from the sounds of it, you, so you graduated high school. You didn't go, you went to college for a little bit? I did, yeah. But, uh, what was that all about? Well, I went to college because that was kind of the, the normal thing to do. In fact, at that time, I thought of either becoming a cop or going to college. And so I remember talking to some dude at a precinct. I think he was a sergeant. And he said, hey, you're too young. Join the military, get some experience, and then, uh, you know, come back. So I said, all right. So I went to, uh, to Adam State in southern Colorado and my major was elementary education. I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher, probably because kindergarten cop had just come out, and I thought that was cool. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I went down there, and uh, I ended up uh, hanging out with this gal. We ended up, uh, long story short, having a couple kids. So freshman year got real serious. We didn't have a couple kids within a year's time frame, but... Uh, <laughs> How's that happen? Yeah, I'm, was, I'm not a biology major, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, they were twins. No. twins, bro. No, yeah, so... She got pregnant freshman year, so things got real serious. Yeah. I had to have two part-time jobs plus a, a full loadout, which is good. It actually saved me from a lot of the shenanigans that happened in college. Yeah. Kept me focused. We ended up having a second kid. Um, by the time I finished my junior year, the kids were getting older, and I thought, damn, I, you know, I don't have a steady paycheck. I don't have health insurance. I know I want to do this military thing, but I was thinking of you know maybe the officer route. In fact, between my sophomore... In junior year, I went out to Quantico to Marine OCS, oh, yeah. and it, I hated it. It was a bunch of yelling. I was like, holy shit. So they have two <laughs> options for you. You can either go to a split course, two six-week courses, or you can go to one chunk 10-week course, the combined course. So I chose the split course. So I went out there for, uh, for the juniors course out in Quantico, and it was miserable. My luggage got lost. I didn't have anything I was supposed to have. So I was the dude right off the bat they focused on. I'm like, this <laughs> sucks. Nothing. All this yelling about starched camis and shiny boots. So I hated it. Um, and it was at that time that I found a book on sale for five bucks at a grocery store called Red Cell. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So that was the introduction to the whole SEAL thing. Um, and I remember talking to this dude who was a former Marine uh, at the college I went to. And he said, bro, don't join just to join. Have a purpose or the military will find a purpose oh, yeah. for you and it sucks. And which it's going to be whatever they we, need. Yeah, the yeah. needs of whatever. Yeah. So he said, do some research. This is, you know, mid-90s. So there wasn't a lot of info out there. You can't just YouTube everything. So it was still a mystery. So I did what I could do to research stuff, but I stumbled upon Red Cell. And I was like, holy shit, these dudes are awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I started to find out names, and there was a couple Vietnam-era books out there. Um, Point Man by Patches Watson. Yeah. Love that book. Yeah. So, just, just real quick, not to interrupt, but the, for the listener, Red Cell, uh, Dick Marcinko, that's SEAL Team 6, basically when it started. Uh, and, and for a lot of us, you know, a lot of us, myself included, read either Rogue Warrior or, or Red Cell, you know, a combination. Dick Marcinko was the commander of uh of seal team six in its inception basically and red cell was was a story where they basically tested uh the security elements and parameters of different installations be it government military etc ships you know security stuff like that and that was their job was to try to infiltrate and, and test you know you name it i mean whether it was the highest level at the white house or, or whatever it was like you know they they were tasked with doing that stuff so just you know so that you guys uh 
you know, understand where, where that's coming from. Like for a lot of our guys in, in this, in our era of, of the SEAL brotherhood, the, the Vietnam guys, James Patches Watson and, and Dick Marcinko and even Carlos Hathcock and, you know, the Vietnam veteran, you know, pipe hitter powerhouses had a huge, mm-hmm. a huge uh, influence there. But uh, sorry, continue. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on. No, awesome. Yeah, I forget because we're just yeah. two dudes chatting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And that Vietnam era was just yeah. amazing. Those are really the only stories we had access to at the time because yeah. not a lot was going on. So I just fell in love with the book and the characters in the book and the people. And, and I, I get a lot of people hit me up on social media, you know, what do I do to prepare for buds and stuff? And so my formula was the mindset portion, which you know is the most important part. I could actually picture myself with these dudes. Mm-hmm. Not only did they have similar personalities and cared about certain things, you know, professionalism is marksmanship and PT and not shiny boot stuff. Yeah. So I agreed with that philosophy, but the more I read, I just, I pictured myself like, with these dudes mm-hmm. like damn I, I could i think i can hang out with these dudes you know what i mean so yeah. it it made it it humanized it for me i think a lot of dudes look at the teams and other units as like superheroes or untouchables yeah. but these books really added to me the human element to it and i said damn i think i belong in this community like i just i feel more comfortable reading these books and i do interacting with people at college or you know whatever yeah. circles i was in i just never felt quite right yeah and talking to other team guys it seems to be uh we were all kind of the troublemakers until yeah. we we got to the teams and we're like oh dude there's a bunch of us you yeah. know it was like i found my my yeah. little basket of you know <laughs> crazy <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. so that uh definitely reading that book started me on that path but i was still in the marine corps officer program I was going to go back after my uh, junior year to the senior course out there, and then I was going to be commissioned as a second lieutenant upon graduation. So I had to call my officer selection officer and say, "Hey, uh, check this out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to turn that on a switch. <laughs> yeah, I want to join yeah. the Navy as an E three. Yeah. And so he goes, uh, "Listen, obviously I believe in you. I put you in my program, but do you know the chances of you making it in that program?" <laughs> and I said, "Look, I'm not really interested in percentages or numbers. I just I have this feeling." So he said. Do me a favor, hang up, make out a list. I want you to physically write down a list of pros and cons and call me back in 30 minutes. I said, all right, cool. So I did. I did the little pros and cons. The cons way outweighed the pros. The, the pro is just like, because I want to. <laughs> and the cons were like, I'm turning down a college degree. I'm turning down a commission, finances, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I called him back and I said, well, I got your list and I read it to him. And I said, but I just have this wild hair up my ass about this buds thing and the teams. And he said, well, if if that's what you got to do, I'll support you. So I had to go with a Navy recruiter to his office. He signed some papers. They signed some papers. I must have bought a house in the process. I signed so many papers. (laughs) I had to pay back the money that they gave me while I was in college and stuff. So my mom was not happy at the time. She'll deny this, especially if she hears this. The first, I had to make a tough phone call now because she's proud. Here's my son in college. He's going to be a Marine officer wrong i call her up and i said well this is what i'm doing and once i told her that i wanted to be a navy seal her first words were they're a suicide squad (laughs) thanks mom yeah she denies this to this day i'm like oh i remember specifically and so now of course you know the deal when when she introduces me this is my son clark the navy seal you're like mom it wasn't always that way yeah exactly you remember the suicide squad (laughs) i never said that i'm like yeah you did so that was kind of my my entrance into the military community was a little 
shuffled. Uh, but once I enlisted in the Navy and, you know, ship off to boot camp, I was a little concerned about the uniforms. But other than that, I, I fitted in well. And yeah. It's good. You know, it, it's interesting you bring up the, the visualization piece. It's something that I, I talk about, you know, with dogs a lot is that, you know, a lot of times people come to me and they say, well, I, you know, I just can't get my dog to do this or whatever, you know. And, and you know, visualization is such an important and powerful component to, to our lives. And I don't give a shit what you're talking about. I mean, we did it. and I was on the swim team all growing up and, and we used to we would all lay in in you know, like in the locker room, like we'd all be scattered out, like, you know, fucking bunch of dead bodies and, and the lights are off and the coaches in there, you know, walking us through, like walking up to the blocks and, you know, what it so sounds like, what it smells like, what, you know, mm -hmm. what the, the rough blocks feel like on your, on your bare feet, like that intricate of detail and walk you through a race where you crush your personal record and whatever. And like, yeah, the, the, the impact that that has, I don't think, you know, people that haven't done it or, or don't, a lot of people don't realize how incredibly powerful that is, you know, and just like mm -hmm. you said, like, you know, I don't care if it's going through SEAL training or, you know, mastering how to bake a fucking cake. Mm -hmm. Like if you visualize yourself just destroying it and, and, and crushing whatever goal it is and do it over and over and over, like it becomes part of you, Yeah, you know, and, uh, for anybody listening, like if you're not a believer, try it. Like when you, when you lay in bed at night, spend 10, 15 minutes visualizing, it's a good way to turn, you know, turn your brain off or into a different mode where you get ready to sleep. But but it also is beneficial. And, and again, whatever goal it is that you have, like that shit is powerful. And, uh, you know, I, I do the same thing with a lot of stuff, but it's, it's neat to hear, you know, you had kind of a similar, similar experience, you know, uh, getting ready to, to join. But one of the things that, you know, that I'm curious about because I didn't spend any time in the fleet is that, you know, you, you so you join the Navy, you know, I'm sure your, your, uh, recruiter screwed you over and <laughs> fucking told you one thing and, oh, yeah. and another thing happens, you probably want to wring his neck, but, you know, what, what was it like? You know, tell me about your experience of being in the regular Navy before you went to, to SEAL training. Yeah, so I fell for the old trick of, hey, go in undesignated, bro. You don't know what you want to do. You know, you get to see these rates for what they are. And uh, after a few months, you'll get to hang out with these dudes. And then you, you want to be a corpsman. You go down to, you know, Medical Bay. And so I was like, that's cool. I get to check it out before I commit. Wrong. Dude, I get to the fleet. Undesignated deck seaman, which, you know, anyone that knows anything about the Navy is just straight up slave labor for the bosun mates. So I was on a floating prison called the USS Shiloh for a couple years, and uh, it was humbling. It was it was culture shock. I never uh, really traveled before. The Shiloh? USS Shiloh. What, what kind of ship was it? It was an Aegis cruiser, and uh, I guess it was named after the Battle of Shiloh, some Civil War battle. Um, so it was a missile boat. So what we did is we were plane guard. We would cruise about a thousand yards behind the aircraft carrier, which was the Carl Vincent. We were part of the Carl Vincent battle group. So our job was to protect the carrier because it's very vulnerable. Um, you know, it's got these cool airplanes that sit on it. But when those airplanes are not uh, flying around destroying stuff. <laughs> Fucking oh. cheers. <laughs> cheers. We gave ourselves away. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon.
<laughs> what was that? I, I don't know. So basically, like, in, unless there's unless there's planes doing for for those of you that that aren't watching the YouTube video, we just uh, cracked a couple of beers and cheers it out. So <laughs> if you want the full story, check it out on YouTube, and you'll see that multitask like a couple of fucking heroes. But anyway, yeah, walking and chewing bubble gum. We're we're, we're smart. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so yeah, it was good. Um, again, being from. You know, a small town in Colorado. I traveled to like California and New York in the summers to visit family, but I never really been anywhere. So the fleet, I went straight on a Westpac right out the gate. So we hit like Japan and then all these other Hong Kong and stuff. So that part was awesome. But being undesignated, I mean, you're bottom yeah. of the bottom, dude. I mean, oh yeah. You know, it's it's funny because you know going through buds like again, I didn't have that fleet experience. Um, I did my first platoon when I was uh, an, an amphibious readiness group Alpha Arg Alpha, where we did a bunch of fleet exercises on ships. But I remember in buds like looking out into the into the Pacific right off the coast of Coronado and seeing yeah. these big fucking ships. And and to me, even having not been on one, I was like, God damn, I don't ever want to go on. You one just know it's a bad thing. For, yeah, yeah you exactly. Know, but, but that's a motivator. I'm curious, like when you go going oh, through buds, are you looking like I'm not fucking going back there? That so, and I kind of knew that ahead of time. We we're talking about the mindset portion. So I hated the fleet. I always knew and my little mantra in my head was every bad day in the fleet is going to be a good day in buds. Mm-hmm. I knew it. In fact, I kept a journal. Even when I went through buds, I got it. Did I email you that journal? Mm-mm. It's funny as shit just to see some of the stuff. Yeah. So I did that just to kind of keep my sanity on my first Westpac in the fleet. I kept a journal, and uh, and I just kept reinforcing that hey, this is this is going to pay off someday, and that was my thing. Every bad day in the fleet is going to be a good day in buds. Yeah. So I suck up the six month deployment. We went in the Gulf and you know just did golf shit. I mean it was fairly eventful. We lobbed some tomahawks into Iraq. Um, my bosun mate knew that I wanted to go to Bud, so he put me on the VBSS team. Yeah. Because at that time, they were enforcing UN sanctions. And that's uh, VBSS's Visit Board Search and Seizure, which is kind of like modern-day pirates, really. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you know, whether it's Navy or Coast Guard, they, you know, most ships have these VBSS teams that uh, that mount up and they take small boats and go take take other boats or ships down like like some pirates. And uh, we do a lot of that in the SEAL teams, but uh, but continue. So, yeah, I did as, as much as I could in the fleet to somewhat prepare myself. Or It, it was pretty tough, but I did. Uh, my LPO was supportive, and so he put me on the VBSS team. And also for general quarters, he put me on the 25-millimeter uh, chain gun we had portside and stuff. Girl. And, yeah, so it was fun, man. Um, there was actually a situation. I don't know if I could talk about it, but uh, it happened in the Gulf in '96. Um, there was a, a dude, they came over the 1MC. We had some some SEALs and some Force Recon dudes fly on board. Uh, the Cobar Towers had just been blown up in 96. And uh, there was an Air Force barracks. And so all of a sudden we were at general quarters, shit got real. And the SEAL dudes were on board and recon dudes were on board. And so my bosun mate, uh, the BM-1, comes to me and goes, dude, this is it. Like, we're going to man the port side 25 millimeter our job, we're going to pull up next to this Group 3 cargo ship, and we're going to shoot the pilot house and disable it, and then the SEALs are going to fast rope on and take the ship down. And so the captain gets over the 1MC and says that uh, there's a, uh, a well-known terrorist that is responsible for the, the Air Force barracks bombing, the Cobar Towers, and his name is Osama bin Laden. And I was like, that's the first time I heard the name. I oh, just, shit. whatever, it's just another goofy name at the time. <laughs> 
Um, and we stocked this ship for three days at general quarters. And I was like, dude, this is, it's going to happen. And we get to light the pilot house up with 25, like just, <laughs> I was so pumped. So for three days, uh, BM1 was cool. He goes, listen, this is how it's going to work. We're going to take shifts because you have loader and shooter. And then you're on the, that you can talk to the bridge and stuff if you're the loader. So he says, I'm not going to pull rank on you. We'll just kind of let this flow in three hour shifts and ended up, it ended up being kanked. Unfortunately, uh, we stocked this ship for, for a long time and it never went down, but, uh, the seal dudes were cool. This is the first time I like saw them up close. And, uh, there was this dude, uh, oddly enough, it was team five that was on board. And this dude had a big red Afro with chops, which is not that uncommon. There's some characters in the teams. And I remember, uh, seeing him in the chow line and I asked him like, Hey, uh, when I get off the plumbing, I'm, my chit's been approved to go to Bud's. Do you have any advice for me? And He's he like, was, don't quit. Oh, no, no. He, <laughs> he was a big dude and he was cool. He just kind of looked at me. This, this little fucking dude in the chow line, you know. He just looked at me and he said, hey, little man, if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. And he was nice about it. And, you know, guys in the regular military can be kind of jerks. You know, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, people think, you know, their rank or whatever. And so yeah. I'm not too impressed with fleet sailors, you know. Uh, but this dude who, you know, I thought was a rock star, was just so cool and nice to me. That one moment he took out of his day to say, if I can do it, you can do it, yeah. um, really resonated with me. And yeah. I still try to pay that forward to other people I talk to. Yeah. Um, and I ended up at five, and I looked for that dude my entire time. They were like, dude, where's that red Afro dude? I want to tell him, bro, I made it. Remember yeah. that little skinny kid in the chow line? That, that's me, bro. I never found that dude, man. So if he's out there, red Afro dude, I love you, man. Just, I'm assuming then you didn't know anybody that knew him. Like you never found out who it was. No. Oh, I did. I asked around, yeah. and uh, I, dude, I don't know. Maybe he was a ghost or something. But <laughs> ghost ninja of SEAL yeah. Team Five. But he was so cool, man. So that was kind of my my first real experience with the community, uh, and very impressed at how like mellow and cool. Yeah. Which to me is kind of my experience. Like most team guys are comfortable in their own skin, and even when I was a team guy, uh, I did an ARG platoon as well. And I took my time to talk to people and just be a normal dude. And you know, mm -hmm. especially coming from the fleet, I was not better than anybody. I yeah. Some guys might have that attitude, but I kind of learned from his example to just be yourself, dude, yeah. you know? Well, I, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, shit, pick any community. If, if you're representing it um, and you're, you know, the minority amongst a, another big group of people where you're you're kind of that representation, like, yeah, I, I, I mean, it... Uh, I think everybody's well served to to do your damnedest to represent, yeah, you know that community as as positively as possible, and not walk around you know like an asshole with a chip on your shoulder, you know, trying to yeah. trying to feel like you're better than everybody. And I, you know, there's there's certain there, you know there's some some groups that are worse about <laughs> worse sure. about that than others that uh, we'll we'll save for maybe another episode, <laughs> but uh, maybe we'll get one of them on here and bust their fucking balls about it. But um. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's neat to hear, you know, both the, the positive impact that I got, you know, to me, it's, it's what's neat about that. It speaks volumes of just humanity in general is that, you know, whether it's paying it forward or just doing what, doing one thing that's polite or nice, you know, a yeah. day, like how big of an impact that can have on could somebody. could change like, some dude's life. You don't know. Well, yeah. You know? I mean, think about it, like how long ago was that? Oh shit, dude. That was over 20 years, right? Yeah. 96. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so 22 years ago and like that that not only is still very fresh in your mind but it had you know a very very uh, prominent impact on on yeah. your service uh, you know moving forward so yeah um you know to me again it's just it's uh it, it's a neat neat element i think of 
you know, of, of humanity and how, how important th- things like that are. So anybody out there listening, you know, I don't care if it's somebody at fucking Walmart or, uh, I mean, whatever, like if you can help somebody out and, and make their day better, do it. Cause I mean, it, it'll have a, a bigger impact than, than you think a lot of times. Exactly. I, I, well, and also realize that it can have a, the opposite effect. Sure. If you're if a jerk you, to somebody, yeah, it could, yeah. you know, you just, you never know where someone's at. Yeah, or, I mean, somebody's on the fucking ledge one day yeah. and, and you, you push them over by being a total prick. Like, yeah. Yeah, you know, so uh, always always look for the good. I mean, doesn't doesn't cost anything to be be polite. You know, yeah. of course, it doesn't cost anything to be an asshole either. But uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but uh, but it might. You know, it, it may cost you your teeth if you if you're an asshole to the, <laughs> the wrong, wrong guy. dude. Yeah, yeah man, but, that's right. <laughs> um, so so you got you got your chit approved your your application basically to go to to seal training. Now here's here's where you and I meet. <laughs> Uh, which is, I think there's so many good stories I can't wait to get into this shit. But, um, so, you know, I, I actually, I was in, in class, I was in class 214 first, um, which is what, you know, cause you were in 15 the whole time, right? Yep. Yep. So, you know, we didn't actually meet until, so I, I classed up with 214, <clears throat> went all the way to six days before San Clemente Island. And I, I had pinched my sciatic nerve. Uh, early on in, in the third phase of training, um, doing land nav up at Mount Laguna, land navigation, oh, shit. I pinched my sciatic nerve. And then from that day forward, I failed everything. Uh, so I ended up, ironically enough, I got failed for, I failed for swims, but I, I failed everything. And that was just the first thing that I failed three of, mm. got rolled back, uh, you know, healed up and then jumped in with 215. And that's where, where you and I met. So we were only in, in third phase together, but graduated together. But just in in that short amount of time that, uh, <laughs> that, we, were, that we were together, that you know, there's there's a couple things that stand out. I don't I don't know how well you remember me. <laughs> probably, probably not that well. Oh, I do, uh, I do. I mean, because I mean, shit, I was 18. You know, I was 18 years old, and and I mean, I was a skinny little punk. I mean, I, I weighed 145 pounds in buds. I think we all did, man. Have yeah. you ever seen someone's buds photo next to their oh, like crazy. platoon photo? Yeah. yeah, dude, I look like I'm 12 years old. I mean, shit, I was only <laughs> six years older than that, but yeah, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I look like a child. Um, and uh, but anyway, you know, one of the things that I, I remember that my my first kind of prominent memory of you, <laughs> you know, where I'm going with it, is so we're, we're on a we're on a flight out from San Diego to San Clemente Island, which is the last thirty some odd days of training, and that and they call it the Rock. It's you know twenty six miles long by two miles wide. It's about ninety miles off the coast of San Diego. And, uh, and it's, it's rough, you know, nobody can hear you scream on the rock and in the Island, whatever. But, uh, but so we're chartering a, a con or a, a military <laughs> con air, <laughs> con air flight, <laughs> Freudian slip. Yeah. We're, so we're on a flight from San Diego, North Island, uh, Naval air station to San Clemente Island. And, uh, you know, we're, we're halfway there. It's a short flight or whatever. And, and Clark gets up to use the bathroom and comes <laughs> comes out and uh as soon as you come out of the bathroom both like fucking rocky balboa like both hands straight up in the air and like i fucking owned it <laughs> which was it's like you fucking rubbed one out in the in the airplane bathroom by yourself on it and like looking back like, at the time it's funny but like looking back on i'm like you sick twisted fuck <laughs> yeah. you know like uh who, who rubs one out on a plane full of dudes going going, going to san clemente oh. But uh, that was my like the first time I really remember. <laughs> remember, like it got to be known for something, you, bro. You sticking out is like if Jesus Christ. If your masturbation habits get you known, dude. <laughs> well, so that that started out early on in buds. Uh, one of our naval academy grads told us about a game that they play at the academy. If yeah. you you jerk off in a place, you own it. Yeah, I'm like, oh, 
don't put that in my head, you know. So <laughs> I started playing that game around the Buds compound. The only time I failed is I never owned Hell Week. Mm. I owned everything else, everything yeah. you could come up with, uh, the Surf Zone, you name it. Oh, like the- I was, I, I had a little hair trigger. I could, I could get in there and do my business quick. <laughs> Hell Week, we're going through Hell Week, and I have my moment. We're at the, we're at the, at the pool doing our thing, and I go to use the bathroom, right? And so I close the the shitter door stall. And uh, there were centerfolds put up, and it yeah. said "Keep it up, two fifteen. <laughs> or you know, the, the supporting class had, yeah. had put those on. I'm like, oh my god! Not only can I, but I have some inspiration. <laughs> and so I'm I'm doing my thing, and all of a sudden, this instructor kicks in the door to the bathroom. Who the fuck is in here? And I was like, I was so close. I was like, but immediately, you're like, nope, yeah. couldn't do it. <laughs> and then, uh, as you know, you get far enough into Hell Week like that, it ain't gonna be possible past oh, yeah. like Wednesday. You're done. So I had my moment, probably like. Probably early Tuesday, I was like, I can, I can own Hell Week. Hell Week got me, dude. That's I'm like seventeen and one. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, one is Hell yeah, Week. Maybe you can go back and uh, go through it again. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks. Yeah, I remember. Uh, so out at San Clemente Island, there's a. Uh, it's called that. The it's referenced as the Hell Box, which is the the instructor cadre has like a, a lounge area. <laughs> Um, that's, you know, kind of in, in the middle of the compound or whatever. And that's like, it's, it's like the fucking Taj Mahal. Like it's a sacred place. You don't fuck with it. And, and you know, they, they would have us come in and clean and, and, uh, you know, restock fridges and shit like that. But it was like, you know, you were like walking on eggshells, tap dancing around in there. Like, don't even fucking breathe wrong. And sure as shit, what does Clark do? He comes, he fucking owns the hell box. Like, I owned it, yeah. you got to be shitting me right now. But uh, Hey, remember the time we were up on the range shooting rifles and they had the instructor porta potty and the students porta potty? Mm. So I was going to own the instructor's porta potty and sure as shit, here comes the instructor's truck. And I was like <laughs> under the pressure, dude. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I can see this pickup truck coming up. I'm like, I got this. I got it. I did it. I busted out the porta potty. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. So, you know, for everybody listening, yes, uh, this is a normal conversation. There's really nothing abnormal about this. Uh, you know, and uh, it's just, you know, we're all a bunch of filthy fucks sometimes in, uh, in a lot of different ways. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, so we, we graduated 215 together. And, and uh, you know, for me, it was... It was a little bit bittersweet because, you know, for me, that wasn't the class I started with. You know, I, I always uh, wished I'd graduated with 14, but uh, I mean, shit happens. It is what it is. But um, so we graduated at 215. Uh, is there any, any other stories from Buds that kind of stick out in your mind as being like, you know, something that, that shaped who you are or, or, you know, that stick out as being like, you know, a, a prominent uh, moment in your life that, that really stands out? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the introduction to the brotherhood. Yeah. Uh, especially the further you get, the more you bond, you know, and they, they, they kind of try to teach you early on, don't make friends with dudes because they might go away, yeah. you know, but once you get into second phase, third phase, you're kind of in your rhythm and you start to bond. So that was my first introduction uh, to the brotherhood, which I fell in love with. Um, but I also was, I really admired, remember instructor Ryan, our third oh, phase God. proctor. He yeah. was an animal. Phil, Phil Ryan, I'll tell you what. He would kick us out of bed at 3 a.m. on the island and PT yeah. us for like three hours. Like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah, like his, dude was a monster. Or, you know, our, uh, we did runs through Balboa Park with a dude. Yeah. He was just an animal. And he always would have his ghetto blaster cranking yeah. some crazy tool like Metallica. or Metallica. Yeah. And it was just, like, he was so motivating, yeah. dude. So I just, he always stood out as a... Uh, my second phase proctor, um, 
was not he was going through a divorce and so he he took his divorce out on us yeah was so, it bablik no i wish you know i made friends with that dude in thailand man we'll get to the bablik story but all right well I, I bumped into him i digress but i bumped into him in iraq and then we became friends in thailand he's actually a nice dude yeah no he's a great guy as an instructor i was yeah. terrified of yeah. him uh it was was it weber well at any rate yeah so anyway he was going through a divorce and so uh, second phase was miserable. He took it out on us. Yeah. So by the time we got to third phase and we had Phil, I was just so motivated by his energy, dude. I mean, the, 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 he'd always blast metal and we'd PT for like, it was supposed to be an hour, but it was three hours. And so he always stood out as like, dude, that's, yeah. that's fucking awesome. So a quick story. I don't know if you remember quick story about instructor Ryan. And if, you know, I doubt that he's listening, but if he is, that dude has to understand like the fucking impact he had on, on an entire generation of yeah. frogmen. Like, you talk about a dude to emulate, maddest fucking respect for that instructor. Like, just, Big time. I mean, holy shit. But um, the it was the it was the I mean, I was only eighteen at the time, but there was the the kickoff, the graduation party at Danny's, which went to like four in the fucking morning. You know, and yeah. he was plowed. I mean, absolutely yeah. fucking hammered. And I remember my parents were in town. Shout out to George <laughs> and Sandy again. Uh, love my parents. I always, I always try to mention them when I can. But um, sorry, mom and dad. Yeah, they uh, so they were in town for graduation. It was the last night. We went out. Like everybody got fucking hammered. I didn't. I mean, I, the one thing good on Danny's, like they were careful about that. But, but I, I was at least able to, to you know, be there and, and share in that experience with the, you know, with the, with the class. But, but you know, instructor Ryan was was fucking hammered. I mean, absolutely hammered. Like you know, past like I think when when we left. Like he was literally in his in the crooks of his elbows on the bar, like past the fuck out at like three yeah. thirty. He could hit it hard, and uh, and so the next morning, like my parents in a fucking rental car are driving me on to base, you know, to to go. We had our last PT of of buds, and you know Ryan was our our proctor, so he was leading it. Three hours later, this dude is on a fucking bicycle with a with a fucking cigarette hanging yeah. out of his mouth, hauling ass. Yeah. You know, just tooling along, smoking a cig, like hauling ass, riding his bike to work, and then just <laughs> murdered us yeah, he, on our last PT. Like, absolutely yeah. fucking crushed everybody's He's spirit. a machine, dude. Yeah, I mean, he's like a fucking Terminator. He's like yeah. a robot. But, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I mean, like that generation of instructors then, yeah, like when we were dude. going through, I mean, like Bless, there were so, so many of them. I mean, fucking Getka and Knowles and Shulman and, and all just, I mean, a lot of, most of the people aren't going to recognize those names, but, I, you know, to me... And I know Clark and, and our generation of, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, kind of the, the right before 9-11 frogman generation, um, you know, the, the instructors that we had at that time. I mean, God damn it. Those guys. Yeah. You talk about, you know, people to emulate. Yeah. You know, and just, you know, top notch pe people that, that inspired a, a generation of, of naval special warfare guys to, to, to fucking walk it. You know, yeah. I mean, really just. You know, I, I can't say enough good things about them. I mean, and they all had their own personalities. They all had their own character traits. Yeah, and they were all just absolute fucking badasses. And and uh, and are the reason, you know, the the guys that came before them inspired them, and, and vice mm -hmm. versa. And I, I truly believe, like that's why the SEAL teams has the both the success and the reputation that they have is because of the guys like that 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 carry that torch and put guys through buds and 
and walk it and, and lead the PTs and, and fucking show them how to be, you know, battle hardened, yeah. barrel chested fucking freedom fighter, pipe hitter frogmen, you know, and, and uh, it's just, it's a lot of good memories. Well, yeah, you got to keep that sword sharp even between wars. Yeah. You know what I mean? We weren't coming off the tail end of Vietnam or we weren't post 9-11 dudes. Yeah. You know, you're maintaining that high level of skill set. Yeah. In between, you know, there's always little things here and there dudes get into, but uh, the standards that that community maintains at all times yeah. is unparalleled. I mean, I it's just it's amazing. Great. Yeah, no, it really is. As we stroke stroke our own egos, here, right, <laughs> right, <laughs> move into uh, <laughs> move into Fort Benning. So uh, we go to we went to jump school together, which that was a fucking clown show. But uh, you know, I won't spend too much time on that. But God, what a what a fucking Fish out of water experience that oh, way, yeah. you know, for for most of us. It was culture shock, dude. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, um, they don't. They, back then, uh, you know, when you graduate, bud, you'd go to Fort Benning, Georgia, to the Army's Airborne Jump School for three weeks and go through their traditional jump school. They don't do that on it anymore. And I would say, unfortunately, I like to me that's a. It is an important element, like both from yeah. tradition standpoint and just understanding the Army mentality a little bit because you're going to work with them. Yep. Um, you know, I, I do look back on that, and it sucked at the time, but but was a good experience. Uh, it's not the most efficient or economical one, but uh, but at any rate, so we go through Fort Benning together, and then I went to SEAL Team Three, and you went to SEAL Team Five, and you were there for uh, for a number of years. Um, t- tell me t- two things. We'll start off with uh, you know your first day at Team Five, which I know is a, is a good story, <laughs> uh, but also just kind of encompassing your your time there and and uh, and what impact that had on you. Yeah, dude, I loved it. So I had a little bit of a heads up of the personality of Five. Uh, when I was in the fleet, my neighbor in my apartment complex was a sniper at Five. So he kind of gave me the lowdown of the personalities and this and that. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but running to Bud's Chow, there was something special behind that chain link fence at Five. Oh, like yeah. It just got a little more weird and the, <laughs> the fence was shaking a little more. Like it was almost yeah. like, what are there inmates behind that? You know, a fucking zoo. Five's a little wild. So, uh, so I kind of, my, my first instinct, and I kind of, I don't really kick myself for it, but my first instinct was three. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, who's more likely to get into the shit? Well, yeah. they, they go to the Middle East. So, yeah. yeah, damn, there you go. But my neighbor had kind of put some things in my head about five, and I'm like, I don't know, the pirate squad, they're kind of, they're kind of nasty. Like, I don't know what's <laughs> going on over there. The curiosity factor got the, the best of me. Um, so I ended up going to five and, you know, as you know, you, you get done with airborne school and you, you show up as a little dapper new guy and your little uniform with your manila envelope and everything's cool. And it's it's almost like going to Bud's, you know, it's this whole new world. So it's like a fucking lamb walking into a goddamn lion's den. It's a hundred percent what it is. Like you, you and you kind of know it too, because yeah. you've already had your ass handed to you in Bud's, but you kind of know that's. As tough as Bud's is, it's this is now like the where you're going to be. Yeah, yeah, this is the real world, man. Yeah. So you show up excited, nervous. And so um, I show up and all the platoons form up. But in the back of the formation was a forklift. And there's a dude naked hanging. <laughs> hanging recurring oh, Nudity. As, as Mike and I continue, will reoccur a lot. There's a lot of nudity. Um, maybe even some now, but... Uh, That'll be on YouTube. You can't, you can't see under the desk. <laughs> yeah, Probably right. Good. Uh, so this dude is is forklifts up. Dude's hanging down upside down. He's beehived in uh, duct tape in certain areas. <laughs> and then there's a sign hanging off of him that says, doesn't want to drink with my buddies. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, shit. And now I'm already like, now I'm super nervous. 
And uh, and no one's paying attention to this poor dude. To this day, I still don't know who that was. I didn't want to know. Oh, and uh, so I'm in, you know, the, uh, what is it, like the Mastered Arms Formation or whatever is kind of at the end where everyone's kind of there. You know, you don't have a purpose quite yet. And I just keep looking over my shoulder like, is this dude okay? You know, like his face is getting red. Like no one gives a shit. <laughs> so then they do the typical, hey, I think we got a, a new guy here. Where are you at? And I just kind of like, I don't know what to do. I raise my hand like I'm in class or something. And they're like, come on up. So I go up to the formation. And of course, the CO is super nice. Like, hey, how you doing? And whatever, everything's cool. Why don't you uh, just tell us where you're from? Turn around and tell everybody where you're from. And it's kind of like... <laughs> The typical stereotype, you know, as soon as you speak, everyone yells, shut the fuck up. And you're just like, holy (laughs) shit. There was no spoiler alert. Like, I didn't see the movie before this experience. When you and I were in, there was, you know, no no info. No behind the curtain. No no heads up on this shit. So, uh, of course, you just feel like a total fucking retard. So, formation's (laughs) over. And they're like, hey, go to the Master Arm Shack and get a locker. So I go into this locker room area, and there's another naked dude <laughs> duct taped to a bench. And there's two dudes beating him with swim fins. And I'm just like, I'm like, oh, shit. So I find my locker number, and I'm nervously throwing my shit in the locker. So as they're beating this dude with swim fins, this guy has a big padlock that comes off the Connex box. And he mm. takes his cock and balls, puts the padlock around it, yeah. and he goes, give me your wife's cell phone number. I'll call it with the combination. And dude, it was at that point I had half a foot out the door, dude. I ran out of the locker room, and I went to the other side of the building, and I just thought, what the fuck did I just get into? It's, I guess it's like your first day in prison. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was just... new meat, dude, fucking whitefish. Oh, I was like, holy shit. It, shit got real, man, so... You know, uh, you know the deal. You've you've been through the same stuff, so it was a, it was a very memorable first day. Yeah. yeah, welcome to the club, huh? God, you know, I mean, to me, for for all those listening that are you know accountants or you know they do do normal <laughs> shit, uh, you know, one of the things that that makes um, you know special operations and and obviously specifically the SEAL teams kind of what what they are is honestly shit like that. You know, and we were talking about a little bit earlier about, you know, the emasculation and, and pussification of our society and just just how weak we've become between political correctness and technology and and not being held accountable for your fucking mouth. Like I, to me, like if I had to pinpoint, you know, one one thing that that, uh, you know, kind of really encompasses the, the shitstorm that our country has, has been turning into over the last few decades, it's that is that. You know, there's a lot of other factors, but like when it really boils down to it, it's like people aren't being held accountable. You know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm either a victim or I can point the finger or I can make an excuse and it's okay and I get coddled. And one of the things that I, I just fucking love about not just the military, obviously, I mean, the military broad spectrum is that way, but especially special operations because it's at a level where, you know, the the most minute fuck up, you know, can be your or several people's lives, you know. And mm-hmm. so the tolerance for bullshit and, and excuses and a lack of accountability is fucking zero, you know. And, and having those experiences, you know, we laugh about seeing that type, you know, all of those things are done for a reason is that if you're not towing the fucking company line and doing what, what you, and, and this isn't even going above and beyond. This is the bare minimum. Now, granted, the bare minimum is fucking high, mm-hmm. but if you're not if you're not achieving the bare minimum, like you're going to pay the fucking man. And you know, I see it. One of the things I was I was actually just talking uh, with it earlier today. You know, with with my kids about uh, short stroking physical activity during like a CrossFit workout. Is that one of them? 
you know, ran just a couple of feet over the grass, like instead of going around a cone, like cheated basically, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the response is, I'm not going to, as a coach is like, well, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to call them out. I don't want to embarrass them. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I wish that I had been the coach at oh, that time. Yeah. Cause I'll tell you right now, I'd been like you motherfucker, go stand in the corner sucking your thumb and you're going to watch the entire group. And I'm going to say, Hey, everybody thank her yeah. for, we're all going to do it again. I'm going to make the whole class do it again while they stand there and watch. I yeah. mean, full metal jacket style. Yeah. Right? Eat your jelly donut. Yeah. yeah. You, you can stand there and, and, and you can watch everybody else pay for your fucking mistake. Mm-hmm. Like how many times do you think they're going to do that again? Never. Yeah. You know, um, and, and there, there's, there, that doesn't exist in our society, you know, and, you know, for people like, well, it's not how the real world works. Motherfucker, I'll tell you right now, it, it should. Yeah. Like, it, it honestly should because that fixes problems. People don't have attitudes. You know, they don't fuck up. When they do fuck up, they're they're held accountable for it, and they remember it. And that shit doesn't happen again when you hold people accountable. You know, and, and holding them accountable, obviously, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, that's for another episode. We'll bring a, uh, we'll bring a Dr. Jordan Peterson on here and get the... <laughs> the psycho and analysis about it. But, uh, but to me, like militaries have been using that style of, you know, of, of repercussion training for thousands of years, you know, and, and in a society now where we don't do that, like you see where that manifests into a bunch of other fucking problems where, you know, people just, they're not held accountable and it's a big fucking problem. So, uh, I, I wish that, that our society was a little more flexible on, uh, on reprimanding each other and uh you know stuff like that like again it's funny to hear about it and you're like holy shit look at her yeah. but, but think about the mentality you had showing up you're like dude i'm not fucking up while i'm here like well you realize your actions affect other people mm-hmm. when other people pay the price for your mistake which we didn't maybe know at the time but when you go to war and you fuck up like you said people get hurt or killed yeah so at that smaller level you realize when you fuck up other people are affected by it and so that's what that teaches and like you said you do that once and you'll never do it again i'm nick the host of the ufo chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering ufos cryptids conspiracies and the paranormal real people real encounters so come with us on the journey into the unknown ufo chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps I'll see you soon. Because yeah. you just, it's, there's an embarrassment factor with it. Like, oh yeah. shit, I just caused yeah. the whole class or the whole platoon or whoever to go through some misery because of my mistake. Yeah. So now you're, you're extra on guard to not make that mistake again. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There, need, there needs to be way more of that. So if you're, if you're the CEO of a company listening to this, <laughs> run that shit up the flagpole and make it fucking happen. Or you can yeah. hire me and Mike yeah. as your yeah. HR dudes and we'll square them away. <laughs> Look at HR dudes. I love it. That'll right. Be, that'll be on the business card. <laughs> HR dude. Call us. We'll fuck you up. <laughs> Tighten your shit up. One, one paddling at a time. Uh, Christ. Uh, All right, so you spent several years there. You did, uh, did you do one, one deployment, two deployments? I did one deployment. one deployment. Yeah, we did the ARG platoon. Uh, what, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll save the, you know, the, the lingo and the terminology. Basically, you know, back then, uh, my first platoon and, and Clark's first platoon are very similar in that way, and that we're, we're forward based on ships, mm-hmm. um, you know, which for me, having not come from the fleet, like that gave me a pretty good 
healthy insight into into the fleet navy and made me you know further yeah. <laughs> appreciate my uh yeah. my uh willingness to yeah. to see you know buds training all the way through fruition but uh you know so I'm, so you got out uh, in in 2001 right yep um and so is there anything that you can share from uh from that deployment that uh or, or that that experience at team five other than kind of the uh, the textbook principles that we were talking about in terms of being surrounded by uh, you know the type of guys you want to emulate and things of that nature but uh what what kind of stands out from you from being at seal team five for for a full full cycle deployment and, and for several years yeah, it was good. I mean, <clears throat> obviously, uh, the workup is the, the hard part of that, that cycle that we go through. Um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, the deployment was good. Uh, at least I had one deployment in the fleet under my belt, so it wasn't culture shock to me. Yeah. Um, so I had been overseas. I had been in some places. Um, I appreciated the lifestyle adjustment. Obviously, a deployment in the <laughs> fleet compared to like uh, we stayed at a pretty nice joint in Thailand on the yeah. beach, you know, little bungalows, and yeah. we would have our our muster at noon with a beer in the pool, as opposed to <laughs> you know covered, as opposed to chipping fucking paint yeah, off the wall and covered in gray paint at seven a.m. and yeah. you know, God. so uh, it really was that contrast of of the lifestyles and stuff. Um, and I did enjoy being uh, on a ship as a team guy. It's a much different experience. Yeah. Then, uh, you know, you, you got that trident on your flight suit. You can kind of walk where you want as opposed yeah. to little Clarky the deck seaman covered in gray. <laughs> hey, get out of here, you know, yeah. cabin boy, you know, <laughs> shoot away. Um, and then, uh, you know, we hit some different uh, different spots than I had been to before. So I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so it was good. It was good. We bounced around quite a bit. We we did a couple of things that were that were fun and interesting. I mean, considering the time frame it was, it was pre nine eleven, so yeah, uh, not a lot going on. But it was we were busy. It, yeah. it was active. Yeah. Um. So I just yeah, I appreciate it. I loved it, man. It was yeah. it was good, man. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I'm uh, I'm in the same boat. I mean, that my first deployment pre nine eleven too, and and similarly, you know, being on a ship, I had I had similar sentiments. But um, you know, I'm curious. So you know, once. Once you actually got out and, and uh, you know, were making the transition out into the civilian world, I mean, that's when, uh, you, so you moved to Thailand, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a little while. I mean, yep. Christ, I got to hear about that. Like, I mean, I, you know, we, like, for those listening, Thailand, and especially for the Navy, but even in some other aspects of the military, like Thailand is like the Las Vegas of the world mm-hmm. for the military or for the Navy, at least, is that. Like, it, it's just crazy shit that happens there, you know? And so, you know, to me, anybody, whether it's you or Babs or whoever, it's like, yeah, I moved to Thailand. I'm like, this is <laughs> yeah, fucking dirty bastard. That's right. Like, I, you know, so naturally I got to hear, like, you know, what what uh, what what drove you other than maybe the obvious to, to move to Thailand? Like, t- tell me what the fuck was that all about? Yeah, dude, Thailand's kind of the Wild West. Um, so basically, after uh, my deployment with five, uh, divorce initiated, uh, which is not uncommon in the military. Teams are no exception. Yeah. Um, and that really was the toughest time to this day in my life, um, the, especially the being the divorce, which yeah. is brutal. We had two kids. This was the same girl I'd been with uh, for nine years from college. And so, I mean, finances ruined. You know, things were really tough. That started some static with me and my upper chain of command at the team, and that's ultimately why I got out. Um, so for me, Thailand was just kind of a getaway from all that. I just wanted to go over there for a little bit. I did a little bit more of the hippie route. I was more of a beach bum. Um, I still 
had fun with the nightlife and you know the the <laughs> what do you mean shiny lights you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know the, uh, the the establishments that are there um, but I really I found uh, some peace in the nature there one the Thai culture is awesome they're super mellow people you know they're just these little peaceful Buddhist people they're always they call it the land of smiles they're just happy dude and so I was coming from I basically I had a divorce in my personal life. I had somewhat of a divorce from Team Five. You know, I was battling my Command Master Chief at the time. Um, so for me, it was just like, man, I just want to be a bum on a beach, dude. Yeah. Um, I had a little ocean kayak. I'd paddle out and just kind of cruise up the shoreline. So it was. Where, where were you at in Thailand? Uh, a little place called Jom Tien, which is just outside of Pattaya, which is nuts. So it was kind of <laughs> like being in the suburb just outside of Vegas. So I, I could dip into the craziness and then I could fade away to the beach life. Yeah. Um, but it's so easy to get around. You can hop on a boat or an airplane and be on some island for a few days and stuff. So it was super cool. Um, enjoyed the people. Not a fan of the food so much. No shit. Sure. I uh, love Thai food. Thai food's good, man, but uh, never trust a fart in Thailand, man. You know what I mean? It's just, I always had that like yeah. that stomach issue over there. So, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, man, it was just, I love that island lifestyle, man. So yeah. it was cool. Um, I got out of the teams about five months before 9-11. Yeah. So, I, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't issued a crystal ball. Yeah. I saw 9-11 uh, go down when I was in Thailand, and I'm like, God, are you kidding me, man? I mean, it was just so horrible to be away from your country when that happens. You I just, I was like, I got to get back somehow. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, I was still pretty bitter with my experience with my command master chief. So I ended up coming back home uh, and talking to some buddies of mine. They introduced me to the concept of 19th group. Yeah. A reserve special forces unit. They have 19th group and 20th group. So, and that's uh, out of uh, Watkins, Colorado. Watkins, Colorado, yeah. just outside of Denver. That's close to the Colorado Springs. At that time, the teams didn't really have an active reserve component. They had like OST one. Basically, I guess you build pallets for platoons or something. It wasn't. Yeah, wasn't anything logistics that, assholes. Yeah, yeah, it was like no, nah, that's okay. So I was kind of looking to ease it back into it. Um, obviously I wanted to be a part of the cause because 9-11 just sucked for everybody. Yeah. Um, so I heard about this reserve SS stuff and I'm like, wow, that's cool. And if it ends up being cool, I'm sure I could snake my way to active duty. Mm-hmm. And what an experience that would be to be both blue and green yeah. in special operations. Like me as a perth, like the growth that would occur. Yeah. And for um, those listening, blue, navy, green, army. Yep. Uh, ninth, 19th group special forces. Special forces is... Uh, specific to the army that's one of the one of the uh common i think mistakes that both media and and you know civilian folks make is is they say special forces as opposed to special operations special forces is green berets but uh so this is a a reserve green beret or special forces group out of watkins colorado that uh, that he joined up with but yeah and they're pretty good dudes i got introduced to sf dudes uh when i was in oki they got some first group dudes out of there. So I was hanging out with some of their SIF dudes and stuff. And so um, I didn't speak Green Beret, Green Beret fluently, and I still don't. Yeah. Um, but my introduction to them was SIF dudes. Yeah. They're pretty badass. Uh, however, when I got to Fort Bragg, I realized it's a large community and yeah. not everyone is a door kicker. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect to my SF brothers, but... Uh, the SIF guys are a little more intense than the the you know logistics dudes. The other yeah. Green Berets, and so uh, so yeah. I mean, I had a good taste in my mouth about these SF dudes. The dudes uh, at Watkins were awesome dudes, man. Um, they put you in a in a rec company, getting you you ready for selection and stuff. 
Um, but because of my prior background, they even waived selection, which I was nervous about because I said, look, I appreciate that, but I'm not asking for favors because, and we've had dudes come to Bud's from mm -hmm. SF. You got to go one one day. You got to go back to kindergarten with everybody else. Yeah, you got to so, prove your shit. Like yeah, that. I don't want favors. I don't want to show up to brag with this little piece of paper. Hey, and then people the shit are like, fuck this guy. Well, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, fuck this guy. Well, so it was kind of like I was trapped between mom and dad fighting. So yeah. the unit, they were like, "No, bro, you know you're you're a fully qualified, dude. Like, really, you should go through MOS and language and you know whatever." Robin Sage and get out or whatever, yeah. you know, they they had a, an abbreviated format for me in mind. Uh, when I got to Fort Bragg, <laughs> they were like, you. they were like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> uh, and what was funny is uh, a lot of the students didn't know what the Trident was. Cause at yeah. that time they had the 18 x-ray program. Mm. So they had these little SF babies. And so literally we're in formation and I'm like, so what'd you do before this? And like, Oh, I worked at Arby's. And <laughs> I was like, Holy shit, dude. For real? You did? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was, Fuck, late 20. I was probably almost 30 at the time. Yeah. And so they would say, oh, what's that on your uniform? And I'm like, oh, I can play with this <laughs> shit, dude. So I'd be like, well, I was in the Navy. What'd you do in the Navy? Oh, I was a naval astronaut. And they would just be like, dude. <laughs> but then the instructors would come around in formation, and they would stop, and they'd be like, what the fuck are you doing here? And I'm like, man, I don't know, dude. One of my favorite memories was one of our, our entrance tests was to swim 50 meters in boots and utes. Yeah. And so they that's, line you up alphabetically. Go ahead. And no, go ahead. It's, it's boots and utilities, like uh, in, in camouflage, like full full pants and in your boots and, uh, yeah. and, and tops. But uh, go ahead. So we're lined up alphabetically. So in Pistato, I'm in the middle and I'm just hanging out. And so finally, I get to the edge of the pool, and this dude in fins and a mask looks up at me and he goes, Are you fucking with me, bro? <laughs> he goes, I'm pretty sure you can swim 50 meters. Yeah. <laughs> So it was cool. I jump in the pool and I swim 25 out and 25 back. And so it was kind of a, a funny, uh, some of the instructors thought it was funny and, yeah. and some didn't. So what happened was I never got into a phase of training. I would report to uh, the National Guard liaison because they brought me straight across as an E5. So I was a sergeant. Well, my attack, I was going in as an 18 Charlie, which is a demo guy. And uh, my attack was like, well, how are you already an E5 in the army? And I said, well, they brought me straight across. They tried to bump me down a couple of ranks, but I told them, I'm, I'm not coming in as an E3. Like, this is, I earned my E5. I have a family. I have some pay concerns. And so they did some paperwork. I came straight across as a sergeant. Well, that doesn't fly in the Army. Yeah. They have their PLDC leadership course. So they're like, well, hold on, bro. You didn't go through selection. You didn't go through PLDC. Like, you're here for SUT, small unit tactics, second phase. And I'm like, bro, I'm just doing what the piece of paper says. Like, I'm willing to do anything you want. Yeah. So what I learned about their SF process, the Q course, is it's not really a pipeline like ours is. They can, like, they'll send a dude out for selection, and then he goes home for a couple months. And then he'll come out for second phase, go home for a couple months. It's it's very modular in that you can do it in bits and pieces. So it's not it's not total immersion ball kicking like we had. No, yeah. it's phase by phase. And so then they were like, well, maybe, you know, well, he's got SEER school, but it's not Army SEER school. So let's send him to SEER school. So I literally would report to the National Guard liaison and say, did I get a phase of training today? No. So I'd go home. <laughs> so I, I sat there at Fort Bragg frustrated, yeah. willing to do anything, not asking for favors. So I had a, a buddy of mine that was at Damnick at the time, and, and I would call him up with my frustrations. So he said, hey, bro, one of our other buddies, I, I don't want to throw out too many names out there because I don't know where they're at or what they're doing. 
But he goes, hey, this dude's working for DynCorp. He's on Karzai's protection detail. And he's making like 10, 12 grand a month. I'm like, what? Are you, is that some soldier of fortune bullshit? Or like, what? I mean, is this, what's going on, man? Yeah. So uh, I got in touch with that dude. He goes, oh, bro, this is like being in a platoon again, but you're getting like admiral's pay, dude. It's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, is this for real? Because I might be able to get out of this because I haven't been quite plugged in yet. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so sure as shit, he gave me the recruiter for DynCorp. And so I emailed him my situation. I said, look, I'm currently stationed at Fort Bragg, but I'm really not doing much. You know, I, yeah. I check in with the liaison dude and see you tomorrow, yeah. um, which isn't a bad gig unless you want to accomplish something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so the DynCorp guy goes, hey, this isn't the first time we've come across this. What we can do is we can put you IRR and then you can just deploy with the State Department. And I'm like, hey, if you can make that happen. And so... Uh, my unit back in Colorado was, they felt bad for me. I mean, they knew what was going on. Like I said, it was this war between Colorado and Fort Bragg of, hey, just get this dude qualified and get him back here. Yeah. The unit itself treated me very well like a brother. Yeah. Um, had a blast with those dudes. A lot of respect. Most of those dudes are former active duty guys with a ton of experience. Um, and sometimes they get deployed more than the active duty guys. It's yeah. weird how that works with 19th and 20th group. Yeah. Um, so luckily, as a favor to me, they put me IR, and I was released to the State Department with DynCorp. Yeah. And then I bounced out to uh, Virginia for a selection process, and that was my introduction to, to contracting in 03, which it is, oh, at that time, a fairly new yeah. concept, you know? Sure. Before we get into that, one thing I'm curious of, and I think a lot of people would be, is that... Um, you know, making that transfer of being, you know, an active duty SEAL for a number of years and then getting out and then transferring back into an Army SF reserve group. Like how, just just real quick, if you could kind of synopsize, like how, how is that even fucking possible? Dude, it's uh, as far as like mentally possible? No, no. <laughs> I know it's fucking mentally possible. Like, like how, you know, I guess logistically, like you just, I mean, the, the like what, is, what does that process entail? Oh, it's easy. You just go to the National Guard recruiter and you say, hey, this is who I am. I've heard about this unit. And they'll bring you straight into a fucking Green Beret reserve unit. Yeah, absolutely. They were just like, yeah, bro, this is easy day, man. Sign here. Um, And then they qualify. in. Yeah. yeah, So I reported to the unit. They're like, hey, this is the nearest 19th group unit out of Watkins. And so I'd make the, you do the weekend warrior thing, you know, one weekend a month, kind of like. I was like Polly Shore in the army now. You know, it's funny <laughs> you mentioned Polly Shore is because goddamn, you sound just like him, <laughs> right? Dude, <laughs> I love that guy. Dude. <laughs> you sound exactly like his head. <laughs> so that's how it was. It was yeah. actually a pretty simple process. Yeah. So because of my contacts with the first group SIF dudes, I was able to get the proper information. Basically, yeah. to go to this recruiter and say, "Hey, I've heard about this 19th group thing. Yeah. Um, what's the deal with it?" And so they made it all happen. And dude, it was just it was flawless. It was super easy, yeah. man. Damn, that's that's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. Mentally, it was different though. It's, uh, yeah. I felt like a foreign exchange student because they have their own language. Yeah. So they'd be like, "Hey, grab your two hundred one files," and I'm like, "What the fuck's a two hundred one file?" <laughs> like, "Oh, it's your service record." I'm like, "Can't they just say service <laughs> fucking?" You know. So I was constantly like nudging yeah, dudes, like, "Hey, me. what are we doing?" You know, it was kind of like airborne. Like we yeah. really didn't know what was going on. We yeah. just kind of did it. Yeah, that yeah. was my experience at yeah. Bragg. But the problem there was too is I was friends with a lot of the SF dudes I had worked with before, yeah. and so we'd you know uh, partake in some festivities on the weekends. And <laughs> yeah. so I was kind of like part student, part bro. You know, yeah. it, it yeah. was fun yeah, mix, <laughs> mixing the fraternization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good mm-hmm. shit. You transfer from, you know, you're in Thailand, 9-11 happens, 
you're like, holy fuck, I got to get back stateside. You roll into 19th group, and then now you get the offer to, you know, do contracting work. Now, you know, for those listening, like the contracting, you know, timeline was was pretty interesting in that, you know, from 9-11 to 03, there, there wasn't really hardly any activity with it. It wasn't until Iraq kicked off. And really, you know, once the whole ground invasion was done, you know, early part of 03, which is when, you know, that, that was my uh, time there was, you know, that conventional force aspect of it, which, you know, was needed in and of its own right of being, being witness to and part of that. But, you know, that didn't take very long. Like once, you know, once all of the, the, especially the, you know, first Marine division had swept all the way up through into Crete where we were at with them and took the palace down and all that shit. Um, you know, at that point it was kind of like, okay, well the country's taken over fucking now what, you know? And I remember, not long after I left there, um, you know, that's when contracting started to pick up and then it just increased, you know, steadily over and over. And, and, you know, one of the things, again, kind of the premise, uh, of, of this interview and this episode is, is that experience, you know, the, the contracting side of special operators, once they get out and they're like, fuck it, I'm going to go make, you know, 1200 bucks, 1500 bucks a day, two grand if they're, you know, supervisor or whatever, program manager shit like that like you know they're going to go make more money but it's it's there's elements of it that are very very similar but there's some that are pretty fucking contrasted you know Mm -hmm. and and, uh so i'm i'm real anxious and and excited to get into this this portion of the interview where um you know kind of hearing your experiences with the contracting side because you know i have a, a ton of really good friends some of which have been killed doing contracting uh, but that have worked for Dynacor and Triple Canopy and Blackwater and MBM and, you know, all these other companies that that have done the contracting thing. And and uh, so, you know, I know that you worked for several different ones. The first one was Dynacor. But, you know, once once you got that State Department offer and, and were put in a position to where you could go do the selection, tell me, uh, tell me, w- walk me through just kind of the that process of transferring over into working for a contracting company and what, and what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. I've always... Uh kind of had that Forrest Gump kind of luck. Uh, I was beating my head against the wall with this SF process. Um, couldn't get that off the runway. And so just through my uh, conversations with brothers, this opportunity presented itself. Had no idea what I was getting into. Um, just off the good word of some bros. Um, so I went off to Virginia for a selection process uh, the early days of contracting were pretty pure. You had to have pretty much a soft background. So it was a lot of CAG dudes, SF dudes, and team guys. That's Delta. And yep. For, yeah. for those not, not uh, familiar, CAG and, and Delta are interchangeable. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the selection process was nothing really to, to speak of at that time because it had just... It had been around for a short time, but it had just grown a bit to where they had kind of a, a senior cadre that just needed some good dudes to get boots on the ground initially. Um, so the selection process was pretty much just to make sure you were good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had some shooting courses and stuff, and it was, it was fairly basic. It, they trusted your background quite a bit. Yeah. They just verified that you were still current. You know, you weren't some, you know, team guy in the 80s and hadn't done anything in 20 years or whatever. You know, they, they made sure you were fairly current and you were still proficient. Um, for me, initially, I was supposed to go to the KPD, the Karzai Protection Detail, 
Um, but some things had changed overseas. And so my entire class, we were told the last day that we were going to Israel. So I was like, uh, yeah, I was like, I don't even know where that's at on a map. And all this cold weather shit in my hotel room, I can just leave it. Like, okay. I was totally pumped for this Karzai thing. Um, and I find myself being whisked away to Israel. And it, dude, it was weird. It, then it turns into kind of this like weird series of events where it was like a Scooby-Doo mystery. So, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to Afghanistan, but now I'm going to Israel. Um, this dude picks us up at the airport in Tel Aviv and, uh, don't know who he is. He just lets us know he's with the company and we all pile in this van. <clears throat> I happen to be riding right front passenger seat and I'm just like, dude, ain't saying a word. He's just driving on this fucking road. I love it. The, the I'm with the company. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, okay, you're just kind of going with it. Like, this is fucking weird to me because prior to that, it's all been kind of laid out military stuff where I basically know what's going on. So we get into Jerusalem, and uh, we go to this hotel. We get cell phones, a wad of local currency, and they just pick who we're going to live with. These other rental cars show up. They drive us to these apartments, and they say, we'll see you at 8 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's weird shit, dude. So I'm with uh, uh, He's now a good friend, but we had just met at that point, and... Uh, we were roommates, and we have this little apartment in Jerusalem. Don't know where we're at in Jerusalem. Just we know that we're in Jerusalem somewhere, and all of our furniture is boxed up like from IKEA. It's a it's a nice apartment, but it's all in boxes and shit. And we're like, what the fuck do we do? You know, this is so weird. We got till eight a.m. apparently to figure something out. And as soon as we're trying to sort our shit out, there's a knock at the door, and I'm like, oh, maybe it's dude. You know, Mister Mister Company, yeah, Company Man, dude. <laughs> And uh, so I peeked through the peephole, and it's a dude in some type of uniform with an Uzi. <laughs> so I'm, I'm at my roommate, my buddy. I'm like, dude, dude, come here, come here. And I'm trying to whisper, answer the door. He goes, you fucking answer the door. I'm like, dude, he's got an Uzi. Come on, man. You answer the door. So I'm like, fuck, dude. This is literally, I don't know how long I've been, like maybe 30 minutes in this apartment. So I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, dude, this is not cool, dude. So I open the door, and he's like speaking some language. I don't know, probably Hebrew, or I don't know what it is at this point. And so I'm just, I don't know what he's saying. So I just said, American, American. <laughs> so and then he starts speaking English, and he's basically asking us who the fuck we were. Yeah. Like, it was on us this quick. Jesus. And so we show him our passports, and he ends up kind of fucking off, you know, whatever. <laughs> so we, as the story unfolded, we kind of got our, our wits about us. Uh, our apartment was right next door to Ariel Sharon's compound, and that was his. He's the prime minister of Israel at the time, and that was like his secret service, going, who the fuck are these weird dudes that just moved in this apartment? So, so, the, so they didn't fucking, de the company didn't no. deconflict that with the host nation? No, like? or give us a heads up. Hey, by the way, uh, your apartment Christ. is right next to the White House. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, so, holy shit. All right, so here, here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delve off into the weeds for a hot, hot, hot minute. Is that um, for all you conspiracy theory fucks out there? That, that think that the government is capable of pulling off 9-11 like they can't even no. <laughs> like when, when i hear that shit like yeah. i just i laugh i'm like if you had any idea how fucking incompetent our government actually was yeah. like it's it's laughable to think that they could pull off something like 9-11 like honestly like choke yourself if, not if you, possible no yeah, way. like they can't get themselves out of a wet fucking paper bag 90 yeah. percent of the time but, you're uh, giving them too much credit when you think they can mastermind yeah. yeah like no fucking no, way like 99 out of 100 people would have fucked that up before they even thought about <laughs> yeah. it happening but yeah. anyway 
Yeah, hundred percent, man. So yeah, dude, I was just in a weird fucking world, man. And uh, we ended up making it work. I think a lot of that in the early days. Anytime anything is new is the best time to be a part of it because oh, yeah. the rules haven't been written. The yeah. book hasn't been written. Like it, yeah. it doesn't exist yet. It's in its infancy. And so we just made shit up as we went, dude. So we end up, uh, we tried to find some food that night. And I remember going out of the apartment and me and my buddy looked right. We looked left and we we're like, fuck, we just went left. <laughs> we ended up finding a sandwich shop and here's another dude in a chair with an Uzi pointed at us. And he's like tapping the trigger with his fingers. We walk up. I'm like, this place is nuts, bro. <laughs> so we end up getting some little sandwich. They pick us up the next day uh, and they brief us. Yeah, at eight. Yeah, this, the <laughs> car pulled up at eight and we went to the consulate. So the embassies in Tel Aviv, the consulates in Jerusalem. And uh, we still don't know really what's going on. Like, what are we doing here? We all thought we were going to be in Afghanistan. Now we've got Uzis pointed at us. Like, this is <laughs> fucking weird, man. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Um, so we get there, and uh, the detail leader... There's this older guy with a big scar up his face. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? I mean, these guys look like someone's chewed their bubble gum, dude. These are some <laughs> fucking battle hardened. Yeah, there's some rough looking dudes around here. So this dude introduces himself. And uh, in the early days of DynCore, all of the team leaders and project managers in place were all retired CAG dudes. So they are all just. CAG by nature is just kind of a serious entity. Yeah, no fucking sense of humor. No, and these guys, I always call them, uh, what, uh, what, how do I describe the CAG dudes? Uh, shit. Oh, homicidal Harvard grads with zero social skills. <laughs> no shit. That's just kind of how they struck me. This is really the first time I was kind of hanging out with these cats. And uh, I ended up learning the story about his big scar. But uh, basically, he kind of tells us what the mission is and what we're going to do. Um, issues us a bunch of legitimate kit and some M4s. And he goes around the table, asks us our background, and he picks five of us to be the CAT team, counter-assault team. And he goes, square away your gear. You know, our first mission's tomorrow. We're going to Gaza, Gaza City. And I was like, uh, are we going to like go to the range at all? Does my weapon go bang? Are we going to sight our shit in? Yeah. Test like, fire? Dude, this is all like normal military yeah. thought process. Nope. You had one night to square away your shit, <laughs> and sure as shit, day two, we're walking around Gaza City, Gaza, and I'm like, what strapped? fuck, dude? Yeah, like, Kid this is, you're an Indian stuff. country, yeah. dude. So it's unlike the military where you you train for forever. Two fucking years before yeah. you ever even And do. then you do a deployment. This is, we had 24 hours to square yeah. away our kit, and because of our backgrounds, we were yeah. put on this team that went, and I was just like, whoa, dude, this is way too fast. Like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm in I'm in G Town, man. So uh, so Gaza was a very uh, a big part of our early story. Um, we took a lot of uh, small arms fire going through there and stuff. It was uh, 03 was pretty tough times. It was right before they built the walls mm -hmm. around some of the Palestinian held territories. A lot of suicide bombings in Israel proper. So you never got away from it. Yeah, we would work in the West Bank or Gaza, 
And then we go back to Jerusalem and cafes were blowing up, buses were blowing up, dudes were throwing grenades in marketplaces. It was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it was overwhelming. Yeah. And I had, you know, only about eight years military experience total at the time. And I'm dealing with CAG dudes that were like 20, 24 years in. Yeah. They would tell stories of the, the uh, botched uh, Iranian hostage rescue. And I'm like, holy shit, dude, these yeah. are some heavy dudes, man. Yeah. Um, we ended up, as any group of guys will, bonding and gelling as time went on. I used to feed them beers and get some little bird stories and stuff. And you know, some of them were in the, the Somalia scenario. So we became a tight team. Um, but we knew at some point that the SAF attacks were going to turn into something more substantial. And it did. Um, and SAF is a... Small arms fire. Yeah, we got you. So, you know, dudes would pepper at us with AKs and stuff. But we had level four Suburbans and stuff. So it was nothing to be overly concerned of, except for the way I saw it was like, this is like my first real world shit going on. To yeah. these CAG dudes, they were probably bored as shit. But mm. I was like, you know, I my my time in the fleet and the teams was fairly uneventful, especially compared to, to modern things that have gone on. So... Yeah. Uh, my time in Gaza is kind of where I got my cherry broke, and I was kind of stoked about it. And these cag dudes were like, bro, <laughs> fucking pussy. calm down, bro. You know, I was like, this is shooting at us, you know. So I was kind of pumped. You know, I yeah. felt like I checked the box, you know. Yeah. Um, but our sixth week into it, as we knew would happen, unfortunately, a uh, roadside uh, hit one of our motorcades going in. It was uh, another team from Tel Aviv, um, and it killed three of our dudes. So that was the first time I had experienced the loss on yeah. our side. Um, and it was, uh, in my opinion, pretty brutal. Like we had to sanitize their apartments and, and mail back things and stuff. Um, I had befriended another team guy that was a team leader of the Tel Aviv team. Um, and again, I'm trying to refrain from names because sure. I just don't know who's who and who's related to who or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, no but I volunteered to sanitize his apartment. Uh, and I kept a shirt that I still have to this day from that. So that was my first experience of uh, kind of when your your soul's torn a little bit, when well, you lose yeah. someone close to you, you know? To me, it's like the, the stark and grim reality of what you're actually doing, you know? It was. Yeah. It was. Um, and being so new to this <clears throat> profession, man, I thought, holy shit, what have I... As dangerous as active duty is, there's still some type of protocol or method to it that I understood. Mm -hmm. But this was so foreign to me. I thought, like, are we just out here flapping in the wind? Like, obviously, there's no U.S. military presence. Yeah, there's no Q in there's Israel. No there's no QRF. Like, it's you against the world, man. It kind of reminded me of Mad Max Road Warrior. You mm -hmm. bust into the Gaza with your motorcade, and it's, it's just you. And the Israelis aren't too stoked that you're there because they're like, what are you doing? Are you yeah. hooking up with the pallies? you giving them money or info? So it was... The best way I can describe Israel is we were the dude standing in the middle of a bar fight, not knowing what's going on. Yeah. Like it was just, Fuck. it was it was chaos for a long time. Yeah. Um. So I spent about two years there. God damn. And uh, so yeah, I was there. My first pump there was eleven months straight, and that was like you're you're in it because you live in it. Yeah. And then you go out to Indian country and you're in it, and so it was uh, it was an eye opener for me. It was to me it was a. A, a growth process as sure. a, as an individual in the industry, yeah. like holy shit, this is. Luckily, I had the SEAL background, and so I, I always feel like I was kind of forged in the teams. But then I got sharpened and experienced as a contractor because to me that was my first real world experience with like, dude, shit's real. Like, yeah. there's people around here that want you dead. This isn't yeah. an ARG deployment out of Okinawa. This yeah. is Gaza Strip. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting component to that, I think, is, you know, 
you hear, and, and I think for mainstream America is, you know, it's Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, and there's not a lot of talk or even really recognition or even realization that, that anything is happening, you know, in Israel or, or frankly, fucking anywhere. I mean, whether it's, you know, the Green Berets in, in, uh, in Africa or, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a lot of other shit going on that you either don't hear about or, or that gets, it's such a small blip on the, on the nation's radar that you don't realize it. But, you know, for, for mainstream America, again, it's important to remember, like, there's a lot of shit going on fucking everywhere. There's boys everywhere, man. You know, and, and it's no less real or dangerous, you know, bullets are bullets, fucking RPGs are RPGs, car yeah. bombs are car bombs. And, and more importantly, intent mm-hmm. is fucking intent. You know, yeah. when, when somebody wants to take your fucking life, cause you're an American, like, I don't give a shit where you're at. Like it, that shit yeah. is real. You know, and uh, and that's a, an important component for people to remember is that, you know, kind of the, the varsity mentality of Afghanistan and Iraq, because there's, you know, volume wise, such high numbers there mm-hmm. isn't necessarily proportionate to the level of danger or, or loss or uh, or hanging it out there. And, and I would argue that that, frankly, you know, in a lot of these other places, because there's such a lack of resources that you're hanging it out worse. Yeah. Really, you know, I mean, because even, I mean, I know, like, again, I never contracted overseas. I did, you know, a very brief stint here stateside as I was transitioning out of the out of the military. But, you know, I had a, a number of friends, several of whom have been lost, but um, doing contracting work. But, uh, you know, the ones that were in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I know we'll get into here in a minute. But, you know, that there's even though the, the u.s military is not technically there to support you they're fuck they're at least still there yeah you know they may not be a, a phone call away the way they, they are when you're on active duty but christ there's at least still dudes there that that at least give even if it's a, fa- a false sense of security like yeah. there's, there's at least you know tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands yeah. depending on what time you're there uh, and in what theater uh, there to, to, to fucking help you out. But, uh, you know, again, that, like to me, that's, that's a kind of an unfor or, or a, a forgotten front, you know, Israel, yeah. Gaza Strip, parts of Africa, Horn of Africa, you know, that, uh, that shit's still pretty gnarly and active and it doesn't get, uh, doesn't get a whole lot of press, but, uh, but anyway, so you spent two better part of two years there. Yeah, I did uh, five pumps in and out. God. My first one was 11 months and then we, uh, Fucking cheers to that. Cheers, brother. We're clinking on that one. <laughs> so it was good. It was. Uh, I learned a lot, man. Um, contracting for me, it really opened my eyes to there's, uh, obviously before that, I just, there was kind of the NSW way of doing things where as a contractor, now I had access to CAG dudes, SF dudes. So I picked their brain, man. I was, it was student time. We'd go to the range. I would study their tactics. We would all run different courses of fire. So to me, the learning curve went yeah. through the roof because it was like, dude, I'm training with guys I never had access to yeah. before. And the, a lot of these dudes were Jedis 20 plus years. And so I was like, holy shit, I found my Miyagi. I just studied <laughs> everything they did. And it was uh, the early days of contracting before it got watered down were, were truly humbling and amazing. Yeah, These, these individuals that I, I broke bread with and drank beers with just... Um, I really appreciated that moment. Like, holy yeah. shit, you know, I'm, I'm really learning a lot about life mm. and about the real world. And it was just, it was uh, initially a very, very good experience, man. Yeah. It started out a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, the, the little bit of contracting I did, again, it was here stateside, just teaching, uh, you know, some army guys, basic, uh, it was three days of pistol, three days of rifle, like ba- basic marksmanship training. But it was from a tactical standpoint. So it was, you know, 
um, you know, the same type of shit that we would do like day one of the range. But, mm-hmm. but what was neat is that I was with a same, same type of environment is that there was four of us and there was me obviously from a, from a seal background, there was a force recon guy, a ranger and a green beret. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, and so like the four of us and, and these guys, this was in, in, um, late 08, like August of 08. So, you know, all these cats had been, been doing contracting for a few years and, and, uh, you know, so had some had some pretty fucking good experience, um, but then also their their culture from their perspective service uh, branch that uh, that contributed pretty significantly to to you know the way they did things and and again the tactics and and I did kind of the same thing as I spent about four months working with these guys and even though it was just basic you know three days of pistol three days of rifle on a flat range it was still real eye-opening and I, I did very similar things and then I was like I'm gonna keep my fucking mouth shut and I'm gonna mm-hmm. learn from these guys and I did like that's when I transferred over into into wanting to shoot a Glock and and uh and and here's the the ironic thing or, or almost the, it's almost embarrassing like I, I learned more about shooting mm-hmm. working with those guys than I ever did in the SEAL teams I mean not that we didn't spend a lot of time shooting but it was very specific and very one-dimensional in terms of it was sure. all naval special warfare it was all seal team stuff whereas like working with guys that had different experiences like I, I learned a shitload about shooting and became a much better shot because of it but definitely uh, but yeah I, I i definitely echo your sentiments there and it's it's uh it's, it's interesting to hear you know that you had a similar experience that way but yeah um, so all right so you did two years in and out of out of israel and, and gaza from there what was um what, what was your your path I was uh, reassigned to the embassy in Kabul, and uh, so Dyncor, it that was kind of the beginning of the, I always call it the new hot chicken town, <laughs> Blackwater and Triple Canopy popped up, so then it wasn't, yeah. when it started in its, upset, in its inception, that's what happens when I try to use big words, <laughs> um, Dyncor pretty much had everything, but yeah. then as these other companies came up, these bidding wars started happening on the embassies, so we actually lost... Uh, the embassy uh, in Tel Aviv to Triple Canopy, which I was surprised about because I thought, damn, we shed blood for these dudes. Like, it was yeah. a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the package was fine, but, you know, the the protection detail took a hit. Yeah. Um, so I kind of figured these dudes owed us. Like, we'll have jobs here forever. And it was actually the opposite. They couldn't wait to get rid of us because of that awkwardness now between our detail and theirs. No shit. It was weird. It was opposite of what I thought. Um Fucking State Department. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm t- I'm t- call them out. I'm telling you. It's a mic drop. Call them out. <laughs> Fuck the State Department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, I was totally surprised. I was yeah. like, dude, we'll have jobs forever. And then yeah. all of a sudden, it's like, hey, Bastards. Triple got the contract. Um, but in the contracting world, they will offer certain people to step across because you have knowledge of the area. You have your buddies with the Terps. And mm-hmm. you've ran these routes a hundred times. You know the people at the different venues. And so... But I had been there for so long. I thought, damn, I mean, it's, it's, I want something new. Mm-hmm. And Dyncor still had Afghanistan. So I'm like, yeah, I'll stay with the company. And it's kind of like the teams, you've, you've earned your way up the ranks reputation wise. You know, there's no ranks or anything, which I actually enjoyed about contracting. It was truly, uh, in the early days, kind of a man's game in that it was all first name basis and it was all like, what do you put on the table now? It wasn't yeah. rank based or how many deployments you had, or it was just this dude's still a performer. He's our guy. He's a workhorse. Um, so I decided to stay with the company because I had been with them for a while and they took care of us. Um, I didn't want to step across and still stay in Israel, even though the accommodations were nice, mm-hmm. especially by deployment standards. I mean, it was 
Yeah. It was good. So I went to Afghanistan and I was initially assigned to the uh, the embassy protection detail. But uh, one of my buddies was a team leader in another mission, a long-range protection mission called Broadsword One. And uh, they went up in the Panjshir Valley and, and did some things with some clients. <laughs> and uh, Nothing vague about that, Clark. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, the company and the clients and the customer and, and things and yeah, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so because of that uh, pre-established connection from one of my former uh, dudes that I was in Israel with, he goes, "Yeah, dude, we'll get you off the EPD. We'll do this long-range stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah, I mean, I was just new, so I was just happy to still yeah. have a job and keep going and and whatever." So that was uh, it. Was interesting. It was very eventful. It was more. Uh, detailed into certain things, um, good or bad. I think I lucked out because I was only there for about four months and it was the winter time. Mm-hmm. So warfare in Afghanistan is somewhat seasonal yeah. because the mountain passes snow over and stuff. Things still happen in Kabul. You know, you get your car bombings or they had these dudes on scooters with these speaker bombs. They would just put these shape charges with yeah. a magnetic speaker on your car and stuff. So we're always worried about dudes yeah. on bikes and stuff. So Kabul was semi-active but where we were was pretty chill so my time in afghanistan i, I always said it was kind of like a fucked up colorado <laughs> like pensure valley is actually kind of nice yeah. except uh you know it smells like mushrooms and everybody <laughs> wants to kill you <laughs> so oh, fuck. um but i enjoyed the experience of it because it was an extra layer to the contract side that i, I wasn't mm. aware of so it was it was interesting but uneventful yeah. So it kind of satisfied just a curiosity factor of wow, contracting. You open a door and there's three more doors, and you can open that door, and then there's three more doors, and yeah. you can start to 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 climb into some some cubby holes with it. So it was interesting in that aspect. It wasn't as eventful um, as Israel had been, but it was interesting as shit, man. It was. I remember uh, going up into Panjshir, and there's burnout Russian tanks and shit. Yeah. I just wanted to scream Wolverines, you know. <laughs> but I wish I had fucked them up. Fucking Red Dawn. Style. I know. <laughs> so I mean, when you were when you were there, I mean, was there was there an element of still that that Russian eighties you know influence there? Obviously, but I mean, what yeah. what kind of impact did that have on on your guys' operations, if any, or was it just more like almost sightseeing? No, it was uh, our in brief was pretty down and dirty. These people here aren't scared of you. Yeah, they uh, fought the Russians for ten years. They fought each other for ten years. Mm-hmm. Every step you take, you better own it like it's American soil. Yeah, these fuckers. I don't know where you came from or what you've experienced, but they're not scared of you. You yeah. have to own your shit. Yeah. So I was like, "What the fuck does that mean, dude?" <laughs> and I remember, I remember uh, <laughs> bend over. I'll show my, you. My team leader at the time was this XSF dude, and our first venue, we went to 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 meet somebody out in town and uh it was funny man i was with my buddy i'll kind of get back to him later on I, I call it the trilogy i was in israel afghanistan iraq with the same dude so yeah. i was like if you have like that typical like battle buddy like yeah. this is my boy man yeah. it, i'll call him j-lo <laughs> uh, nothing to do with the singer but yeah. uh anyway our first night there they throw us in what they call the jammer car and it's not electronic jammings it's this road warrior welded big ass bumper fucking car that they just ram cars out of the way like this motorcade doesn't fucking stop. <laughs> Lights and sirens, 
through downtown Kabul, just, just fucking hitting cars out of the way and shit. I'm like, holy fuck, we're in the backseat of this. Me and J-Lo are looking at each other laughing like, <laughs> what the fuck, dude? Again, contracting gets weirder. Yeah. So we end up at this venue, and uh, the TL puts us out, me and J-Lo on the street. And he goes, anyone comes up the street, you fucking shoot him. And he walks off. And we're like... Looking at each other like, is he like, ser- wait, is he serious? <laughs> like, we can do this? Like, thank God no one came up the street. Because we're like, I don't, I don't know. We would have just looked at each other like, Dude, we should can't. we shoot him? Yeah. So we, the guy would have walked right past us by the time we made our decision. But I was like, this is fucking weird, man. So, I mean, my first few years contracting, which is, it was like a Scooby-Doo mystery. Like, what the fuck do we do next? You know what I mean? It was fucking weird. Um, but eventually I got onto that long range team with some buddies and I kind of knew what was going on in the flow of it. And that really was more of kind of a sightseeing thing. You know, we were with people that wanted to meet other people and we were just there to make sure everything was cool. And so, uh, it was uneventful and I attribute most of that just to the weather conditions at the time, but it was still fascinating, man. It was still, to me, it was historical, like, holy fuck, man. I mean, seeing these things and being in the mountains and, and, uh, you know, we'd link up with, some people and stay in their house for a few nights. And so it was, it was kind of the more mellow side of contracting, but it was fucking interesting. It was, yeah. it was cool. Um, but the karma of contracting struck again in the new hot chicken town, Blackwater showed up yeah. and they took over the embassy. Yeah. So we had a two week period where we were going to do ride alongs with them and kind of show them our routes and this and that. So I'm riding with this Blackwater dude and, uh, somehow the conversation of long sleeves came up and he goes, yeah, they got a new policy. Now if you have tats, you got to wear long sleeves and you can't have a beard. You got to shave. And I'm like, what the, why the fuck are we contractors, man? Like I could just sign back up and shave. Yeah, I know. So I was like, well, this is kind of stupid, but the deal breaker for me was our compounds were directly outside of the embassy and we were protected by Nepalese Gurkhas. Well, Blackwater had this great idea that they were going to build a compound right off of Jalalabad Road. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. Like, it's an unprotected site right off a really heavy stretch of road that gets hit a lot. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, bad guys out there. So I just, I didn't have a warm and fuzzy about it. So again, I decided to not step across with the the new hot chicken town. I decided to stay with Dyncor. So... I sat at home for six months in Dyncor. There's always these bidding wars on contracts with these companies. And the big three at that time were Blackwater, Triple Canopy, and Dyncor. But Dyncor was kind of the dying old man. And really, Blackwater and Triple Canopy were were taken over. So I waited as long as I could. But again, venting my frustrations to the Brotherhood, um, a project in Iraq had kicked off. And the project managers were uh, Duke Leonard and Dennis Chalker. So I was like, oh, whatever they're into, I'm in, dude, because yeah. that's just old school for some epic shit. Yeah. And uh, so I hopped on board, and that was all word of mouth, man. They wanted yeah. all team guys, and uh, it, was, it was very cool. And it was funny because uh, Denny was our command master chief at yeah. Bud's. Yeah. And so I'm like, dude, I get to see that dude again. Like, it's going to be fucking weird. And not to fast forward too much, but my first day in Iraq, I was so excited. I was waiting outside the ready room, and I see Duke and Denny doing their little perimeter patrol around our camp, and Denny breaks off, and I'm like, oh, fuck, dude, he's coming over to me, dude. I'm like the kid that's at the bus stop early, first day of school. (laughs) Fucking principal shows up. Dude, and he comes right over to me, and he just kind of gives me this up and down. What class did I put you through? (laughs) I just started laughing. I said, 
I, do I still call you Master Chief? <laughs> I don't know what to call you. And he goes, call me Denny. And he just shook my hand. And I said, 215, Denny. <laughs> and so that started kind of that whole chapter of it. So, And that was more of a, a training side type thing. Yeah. So that was, uh, it was cool. I but did, still with Dynacore. No, that was USIS, uh, uh, USIS. Okay. Oh, I got you. And so we jokingly say, because it was a training mission, that uh, USIS turned into ISIS. <laughs> USIS turned into ISIS. <laughs> I'm pretty sure some of our former students are... Oh, I don't doubt it. It was, it was baffling, but uh, it was, I got uh, away from the... It was a DOD contract, a training mission. Yeah. And our mission uh, was to create an Iraqi Tier 1 unit, which is impossible because... <laughs> Yeah. They're only there because they're related to somebody and they yeah. don't want to exercise and yeah. they have uh, ADs all over the place. And yeah. so it was a kind of a disaster and a handbasket, but we had access to a lot of good shit because of that budget, man. It was it was good, man. One question, I guess, that six month period that you sat at home still working for Dynacor or, or you know, still being mm-hmm. attached to them, like were you shit out of luck or were they were they paying you at all? Or no. Just fucking No, and that's the downside to contracting. When you're yeah. not on contract, you don't get shit. So yeah. you watch that bank account shrink. Yeah. Which is fine for a while, but when nothing's coming in and yeah. all this shit's going out, like the bank account gets small quick. So yeah. Yeah. that's why I started hitting the panic button and some bros yeah. were like, Well hey, I got this if you want to break away from that State Department shit. Yeah. So I'm like yeah, dude. If it's all team guys doing some shit, yeah. So and so when you were with Usus, what year was that? Was that in oh six oh seven? So what, did that kind of round out your your contracting career with them doing that? Or that did. I finished that out, and I realized my first deployment on the Shiloh was ninety six. Now here it is oh seven, and I'm in Baghdad. I've been gone for eleven years. My two kids went from tots to teenagers. It yeah. literally, I was so caught up in that storm of trying to move forward that I realized, like, damn, my kids are teenagers, dude. Yeah. And uh, at that time, I started to, when I was in Israel, I started to date my current wife. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once you fall in love and you have other interests, like, shit gets a little scary in that like there's repercussions you know when i was kind of in between marriages i just didn't give a fuck like whatever (laughs) dude it's just me yeah i realized my kids are getting older i'm now in love with this gal and i'm like fuck dude why am i doing this and then i remember we used to fly into like either jordan or uae have a night and then you'd fly in and i'd be sitting there in my hotel room like it's one thing if you're in the military like i have a choice i could walk away from this yeah why am i doing this shit like is it the paycheck is it the bros. The bros I keep finding. You know, yeah. I, I luckily I was on good details because as it got watered down over the years, there were some shit details. Anyone yeah. who was a security guard for half a day was now a contractor. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I noticed just even in 08 talking to, you know, the guys that, that I had met doing a little bit of contracting I did was that, you know, early on, like you said, that 03, 04 time frame, it was super selective. You know, the pay was good, yeah. but there was only like one or two shows in town and, yeah. and they could do that. But as these new, you know, chick of the weeks, as you put it, uh, pop, <laughs> pop up, like, you know, when the bidding wars start, then it's like, okay, well, how do we lower our price? Well, we lower yeah. our price by lowering our standards, you know, yeah. and now you got beat cops and fucking yeah. security guards exactly. and, you know, dudes that, you know, no disrespect, but, but have no fucking business, yeah. you know, doing that type of work and, and, uh, and they're doing it, you know? And so to me, like that, that was a fucking scary element. And, and, and you know, I, I never really had a, a whole lot of interest in doing 
contract work uh, on on a broader spectrum like that but uh and a, and a lot of it frankly was from hearing kind of the horror stories yeah. of guys as i was getting out because i got out in november of 08 um you know hearing some of the those stories of how it's getting watered down and, and over that period of time uh how it had, had gotten into what it had gotten into but you know so you had you know a fair bit of experience with the contracting and then so now you decide okay i'm 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 done with the fucking contracting I, i'm done with the military i'm going to come back stateside and now you decide you know i'm going to i'm going to go into to the phoenix police department basically yeah uh walk walk us through that that process of of how how kind of that went so it was kind of funny uh <laughs> In contracting world, we used to bag on cops that were getting in. Yeah. You know, who the fuck are these pussies and you know, all this <laughs> shit? And they, they were kind of the second class citizens. Yeah. Um, and kind of a funny story. I guess I can name drop this dude. So uh, part of that ERU project in Iraq was Mark Geist, who's better known as Oz these days. So he was on the same detail, but we became buddies because he's from Colorado. So I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm from Colorado, bro. Um, he was a Marine, but he was a cop. <laughs> so yeah. we were all kind of like, oh, you're a fucking cop, dude, you know, whatever. <laughs> so his call sign back then was Poulter because his name is Mark Geist, Poltergeist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I mean, we used to just, do whatever, give each other hard times and stuff. And so it was kind of funny. I remember thinking, like, ah, oh, fucking cops and all this shit. But then I started realizing, like, what are you going to do when you get back home? Um, I had a great time in Iraq. I did two pumps there. Uh, we hit Route Irish a lot. It was active, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was oh six oh seven was kind of that second wind of violence. Yeah, man, that was a hotbed of a time to be in Iraq. I don't give a fuck who you are if you're wearing well, an American flag. Like, yeah, shit you were on. a target, man. And uh, luckily, I had already been somewhat indoctrinated in Israel. But each AO had its own. Like people ask me, which one was the worst? Israel was more evil because it's like biblical hatred between two people. Afghanistan was more wild. It was like the Wild West. There was no control and nobody scared of nobody. It was kind of a big fuck you contest. But Iraq was pretty fucking legit, man. Our camp was outside of the biop, is the airport there. So the bad guys know anyone coming and going is going through the biop. And the only route between the biop and the green zone was Route Irish. And our camp was <laughs> right off Route Irish. So we were running up and we called it the chicken run. <laughs> Bead your friends so as fast as those armored vehicles could go. A small arms fire, roadsides, all this stuff. Um, and then we shared a fence line with Camp Cropper where they were holding Saddam. So again, the bad guys know something's going on over there. So indirect fire and it was, it was pretty fucking wild. But that's where I met... Uh, I always want to call him Poulter, but he's Oz now. Sorry, dude. I know you're, you're famous and stuff. But, dude, he's one of those guys, though, that uh, he's still a cool dude, man. Yeah. I, I bumped into him up here in Dallas at a SWAT conference. Yeah. We just I didn't know he was there. And I, he looked at me. I looked at him like, oh, shit, bro. Uh, and we still chat because he still lives in Colorado. Yeah. And so the next That's time I'm there, I want to sit down with him. And yeah. uh, what a, an experience, obviously, he's been through. Yeah. But he was one of the dudes that kind of turned me on to the idea of law enforcement in that, what the fuck am I going to do? My advice to people that want to join the military nowadays is is learn something in the military that will translate when you get out. Yeah. I wish I had been a corpsman or something mm -hmm. or learned a language. I was a 60-gunner Arab. <laughs> so <laughs> if, uh, if you're hiring for air mobility or, or you need some belt-fed shit, you know, <laughs> stunt double for Full Metal Jacket 2, I'll play Animal Mother's Son. <laughs> That's about it. So... It was people like him that, that kind of got that thought process going. 
And uh, so I came back in 07. Uh, I left Iraq, went home to Colorado. And uh, and I'm sure you've experienced this. There's that honeymoon phase mm. where you're home, you're glad to be home, and you see your parents and you see your friends and shit's cool. But then the reality happens of like, well, what the fuck am I going to do now? Yeah. And so that was my conundrum. I thought, well, shit, I, I mean, let me look into this cop stuff. So I looked on some websites. Basically, nobody was hiring in Colorado. Yeah. There's like 3,000 dudes try out for two slots in some podunk sheriff's department. One of my buddies that was a contractor who was a former cop, he was a Chicago cop. He said, bro, especially a dude like you, you need to go to a big city. Mm-hmm. Don't go to some small department. They they won't be able to handle it. Like you, <laughs> you need to blend in in a, a great. He was a Chicago dude, so he knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so my brother was living in Phoenix at the time. So I got on Phoenix's website, and right on the website it said like now hiring five hundred dudes. And I'm like, oh fuck, I can slip through the cracks, dude. I can be the gray dude for a minute. Yeah. And uh, so. In Colorado, they only tested like twice a year. The chances of getting it were none. So I call the number for the Phoenix dude. He's like, oh, yeah, we have a written exam every week. Just come on down. I'm like, shit. So I call my brother. He goes, yeah, come on down, dude. So I hop in my Jeep, and uh, I go down, and I barely pass the written, but I passed. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking ASVAB waiver. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they gave you, like, bonus points for being a veteran, and that's what qualified me, swear to God. It was, like, 10 points for veteran, and that's what bumped me above. We feel bad for you, so we're going (laughs) to let you fucking come in. Yeah, since you ate the pencil. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, yeah, I went through that hire process, and I ended up, uh, my brother owned some properties in Phoenix, so he, he shacked me up in one of his apartments. And I went through the process. Um, you'll like this part. So uh, it goes back to my bud's talent. <laughs> so I go through, there's like a written test, a PT test, and then there's like a background investigation. And, and the background thing was interesting because uh, the background detective, luckily he was a cool dude because talking to some of my other buddies, they did not have cool people that hired them. Um, this dude's like, hey, I need to know everywhere you've lived, anywhere you spent a night, I need to know. And I'm like... You know, I was in the military, dude. Like, holy shit. And I was on a floating boat that went. I mean, I there's probably places I forgot. <laughs> so I tried to remember everywhere I fucking been. We were there for hours. I was just like, and then I was in Guam. Uh, <laughs> and then I was at uh, Tinian and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just holy fuck, how many places do we go? Yeah. And then it started with, uh, I need to go over every tattoo you have. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so <laughs> How much we time went, you got? Yeah, again, poor dude's typing away like, okay, what's on the left? You know. <laughs> so uh, somehow I made it through most of the process. I did have to do the polygraph twice, but I passed. <laughs> so where the, where the rub was, was the psyche veil. Yeah. I know. Fucking Surprising. Fucking style. <laughs> Yo, dude. <laughs> yeah. So the the uh, so I had talked to some of my buddies that were in the process, and they're like, "Yeah, I was it? I was in the the psych's office for probably about thirty minutes. After ten minutes, I was asked to leave. So, <laughs> so this is how it went down. And this is this is embarrassing because I know people are listening. Uh, all of a sudden, I go in there and everything's cool. It's a female psych person, you know, whoever she is. I don't know, doctor, whatever it is. And uh, she goes, uh, "Do you look at porn on the internet?" <laughs> Again, going back to my third phase skill set, I said, well, yes, I do. And she says, I'll distinguished. Uh, well, yeah, yes, uh, yes, as a matter I, of fact, I'm quite of a connoisseur. I'll take porn for 400, Alex. 
telling you, if that was a game show, man. I'd fucking slay it. Oh, dude. You know, <laughs> some deployments are lonely, you know? <laughs> so uh, I said, uh, well, yeah, I do. And she said, well, do you look at anything inappropriate, like animals or children? And I'm like, no. And she said something about, like, what do you, what do you look at? And I said, something smart-ass remark <laughs> about Asian porn yeah. or whatever. And I said, well, hold on. Let me, let me explain something here. And she goes, well, wait. How many times a day do you masturbate? How is that even a fucking question? Like, I, dude, this is getting personal, <laughs> man. Yeah, and I'm just like, and it's a, it's a female, too. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. it's one thing jerking off on an airplane to San Clemente <laughs> with your bros, you know. <laughs> but now I'm talking to this, you know, chick in a little fancy suit type thing and i'm like fuck that i don't know that's your business yeah how many times do you fucking run well i thought about it and i was like i don't know like eight (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ and she just was like she's like no seriously she goes i think we're done here and i said no 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 let me explain myself i said here's the deal so my wife is in thailand it's taking you guys five months to this point to hire me I haven't seen my wife in eight months. She's applying for, you know, a visa yeah. to come over here. I'm in an apartment that has three futons, a PlayStation 2, and a laptop. <laughs> I really have nothing to do. <laughs> I said, look, if you look at a 24-hour period, yeah. it's not that much. I'm, it's, it's, it's more of a marathon, not a sprint. I'm pacing myself. I just, it's kind of out of boredom. So she's like, okay, I think we're done here. And so I had made friends with one of the SWAT dudes prior to me being in the hire process. So I call him. I'm like, bro, I, I think I fucked up the psych. He goes, what did you tell her? So I told him the story. He goes, all right, hold on. Let me call you back. So I think he did me a solid. He called me back however many minutes later. And he goes, you're good, bro. I was like, oh, thank God. That was the last step of the hire process. Jesus, which I, you just know, to be a fucking cop. Yeah, apparently you can't touch yourself to be a cop. There's, <laughs> no, there's a bunch of non-masturbating that's, dudes that's, holding the law. Yeah. Seven times a day, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I anything, guess that's anything the, above seven. Anything above seven, you're not qualified. <laughs> so I so I, I oozed past that process and no uh, pun intended. Yeah, right. And then uh, yeah, man, that that started the the journey. I, I learned to. Uh, Maybe not tell the whole truth. <laughs> don't don't slit your throat. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm just not going to tell you everything. Exactly. How many times a day? Uh, a few. Yeah. A more few. More than once. <laughs> more than yeah. once. Less than a hundred. <laughs> uh, Christ. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, I, I know I'm I'm curious about in terms of, you know, transferring over from you know between being a seal and doing years as a contractor and, and going through some shit there and then transferring over to Phoenix PD, like. You know, I know that one of the things that a lot of civilians either assume or wonder about is like is tempering your your temperament or your your mentality, your, um, you know, that like your behavior, basically, from going through all of that and now being a cop interacting with Joe Q public fucking citizen like. You know, we'll get into kind of the the chronological timeline of, of your experience there, and get into some of the the meat and potatoes of the patrol and narc work. But but I'm curious, like, did you find it difficult to be in in the whether it's the academy or out on the street or whatever? Is it like realizing like you're not in fucking Iraq, you know, you're not in Afghanistan, like you're not in Israel, like you're in Phoenix, fucking Arizona, and this dude, you know, isn't trying to kill you, like he doesn't have a suicide vest, like what? You know what? What? Uh, what can you tell me about that experience in terms of, of being able to temper that mentality a little bit? And, and was it a struggle, or, or you know, what did you? How did that work? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, 
It's definitely a, a change of your mindset. Um, the academy did a good job of of, and there was a group of us. You know, there was other vets that were in that process, and I think we all kind of struggled with the same thing. I learned early on in scenarios in the academy, you can't solve everything by shooting them. <laughs> so, <laughs> how many how many uh, how many people were in the academy, and how long was it, real quick? Our academy, I want to say, it was four months, um, and it's not a living academy. So you go Monday through Friday, and it's it's full days. Um, it's a lot of classroom, um, but we had a retired Marine Sergeant Major that ran it, so it was it was pretty Legit. good, man. Yeah, it was how, it was, many, it was how many dudes or how many people? I want to say we had about fifty dudes in our class, and at that time we were in full swing, so there's probably seven classes rotating through. So on that compound, and it was a multi-jurisdictional academy, so we had like State Police, Tempe PD, Phoenix PD. Um, Phoenix being the biggest agency, there's about 3,000 officers in Phoenix, yeah. um, which is like the sixth or seventh largest police department in the nation. So it's 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 pretty pretty legit, pretty full force. Yeah, man. I mean, we only take our hats off to like Chicago, L.A., New York, yeah, things like that. Otherwise, we're pretty One much the bigger ones. Yeah, yeah, big fish. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty uh, rigid process, and, and to be honest, I actually enjoyed it because I think contracting kind of warmed me up to the idea of there's other things out there. There's other ways to skin the cat. And so I knew that I was kind of a new guy in someone else's world. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely, especially for the younger dudes that were like 21, 22, 23, this is their like buds experience. This yeah. is their like, Oh fuck. I've always wanted to be a cop. This is yeah. so cool. And I didn't want to be that asshole. That's like, this is gay. <laughs> you know, I just shut my mouth and I just let them have their experience and I would do whatever it was. But I found, uh, the challenges in the academic portion. Yeah. Like you, they really, obviously you have to know parts of law and what you can and can't do and, and how to write a report. Yeah. For example, in Iraq, if we got into a, a, a dick dragger, we filled out a Foxtrot report, which was an email to our team leader in case the State Department or the Prime Minister inquired about an incident. It was just documented in like a three-sentence yeah. Synopsis. Crayon on a napkin. Yeah, pretty much. Well, now you're learning to write a shoplifter report that's like four pages long. And I'm like, why, why the fuck is this so hard? Like, <laughs> dickhead stole a pack of fucking, you know, yeah. like, you know, for shooting someone, you used to have three sentences. Now for uh, uh, the missing candy bar, I'm like, holy shit. So they had like report writing classes and constitutional law and all this. I was like, holy shit. But I was smart. And that my study buddy was, uh, he ended up being the the honor grad for the academic portion of it. So, so I, he carried you through buds. Well, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I found that dude. And yeah. so he highlighted what I needed to know in our notes. And I just memorized his highlighted portions. And yeah. thank God. Um, but I still held the standard. I got the Firearms Achievement Award. So <laughs> I did my little frogman part. Yeah. I could still shoot good. But I really, I appreciated it for what it was. Yeah. Um, the defensive tactics were pretty legit back then. They got away from the Kung Fu Seagal shit. Yeah. A lot of the DT instructors, there was some local MMA gym that they were training. So they actually yeah. got you out there and, and battled with you because some of these recruits had never been in a fight. Yeah. And so you would you would go for it. I mean, they would line you up and you yeah. would just duke it out and stuff. And they had a little event called baby boxing and stuff. And so I appreciated it for what it was. I did have some problems early on in the scenarios because I was a little too quick to go to the gun. Yeah. And they, I'm shocked by that. It's weird, right? <laughs> well, they teach you Didn't how to de-escalate stuff and, yeah. and, you know, do different things. And so I, 
having an open contracting opened my mind to other things, obviously working with other people from other units and stuff. So I was, I was pretty receptive to it. And dude, in fact, I wish I could remember his name. I was on a break. And again, there were seven classes running through and this old dude was looking at me. I think I remember, I don't want to say his name because it could be wrong, but he was looking at me and I'll find the name because you would know it. Yeah. And he's looking at me and he walks over to me and he goes, were you in the teams, bro? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. And he goes, so was I. And he gave me his name. And I'm like, holy shit. I remember he was a warrant officer. Yeah. And I was like, holy fucking shit. You look different now. <laughs> he was actually hired uh, by Gilbert PD. No shit. And I, I was uh, like, small world, man. Yeah. No, I, there's a couple of canine officers. Uh, shout out to uh, to Gilbert PD and, and Steve. And uh, the uh, I, I sold a dog to those guys uh, named Bink that ended up. Uh, having to get uh, get his nuts cut off because he had a, a swollen prostate, so he got retired pretty early. But uh, these guys are doing some solid work in Gilbert. So yeah, shout out to Steve and, and Bank and the other crew out there. But nice man. Oh, and real quick, dude, you did me a solid. Uh, remember, you sent a book signed to Mike Lynn, who's a canine handler yeah. out of Phoenix. Yeah, and he was so pumped. And oh, he's like, I can't believe you know Mike Rillen. <laughs> and the fact that you sent that book, man, oh, nice. he was so pumped. Man, he's still with uh, canines now. He oh, was a. Shit was a SWAT dude but went into canines and was yeah. so super pumped about your book dude oh, so fuck, thank you for awesome. doing that yeah, man shit, anytime man that's a that's easy day man but that was cool that's good shit but uh, but yeah so so you met the warrant officer and uh yeah so that was badass dude yeah. small world yeah and uh and actually i was treated pretty well by the cadre there because they obviously know your background and shit yeah. and so and they knew i was quiet and humble and allowed other people to have the experience so no one fuck with me being a yeah. former team guy um, there was another SF dude going in a, uh, another class, and so we kind of yeah. were buddies and things. Yeah, you know, I'm curious about that, like academy wise. Um, you know, obviously knowing your background's half of it, but you know, is did you find that that course was more like a gentleman's course, or was it more like did they, it was it more that way for you and not some of the other people because of your background, or what? What was that? Definitely, uh, I saw it more as a gentleman's course, whereas there were people that were stressed the fuck out, but. Yeah. They were good. I was a squad leader. It was it's semi-paramilitary. Yeah. And so some of the things I had learned in the military and even contracting, I was able to pay forward. Um, I think three of the four squad leaders were former military. And so we gave them the class, the concept of, hey, the, the harder we are on ourselves, the more we police ourselves, the cadre is going to fuck off. Like, yeah. you know, it's kind of like buds. The quicker yeah. the class comes together and the, the yeah. quicker you get your shit, your shit dialed in, the, the less shit you're going to get from them and so yeah we kind of paid forward our, our military experiences into a leadership role there so we had a, a real good class um and it was it was kind of fun mm -hmm. you know at least i saw it but some of the guys that were in their early 20s and this is their first kind of boot campus experience were a little stressed yeah um but obviously for you know for me and the other you know military dudes that were there it, it fails in comparison to some of those experiences so 
Uh, for me, I was able to kind of kick back other than the academic stuff. <laughs> I, I stressed on I just, weekends. I just had to copy the highlights, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just, yeah. Whatever was highlighted, I memorized. Yeah, um, so it was a, it was a fairly uh, fun process. And uh, I thought, cool, this is a new chapter and, you know, we'll see where this goes. I did, have, I did have some heads up on which precinct to choose mm-hmm. um, because of some of the people that I knew ahead of time. They kind of gave me the layout of the city and, and where you might want to work. And so I chose uh, a precinct called South Mountain Precinct, which is South Phoenix. That's the, that's the, uh, the rough fucking customer part, right? It is. It is. That's the uh, south side of Phoenix is, is pretty active. There's a lot of things that happen in South Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. And so I've... I've been blessed to have somewhat of a layered experience. Yeah. I never had too intensive experience in one area, but the combination of, you know, the teams and contracting and now, you so know, was kind of a graduated. It was, and it just it 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 just was kind of this upward swing of experiences and, you know, what I didn't see in the military, I saw as a contractor and what I didn't see as a contractor, I saw as a cop. I mean, yeah. it was just such yeah. individual, and I'm just grateful to have those experiences. And yeah. I have several small circles of, I met a lot of good people along the way. And yeah. so that Forrest Gump luck that I seem to have <laughs> carried into the law enforcement yeah. community. I ended yeah. up at South Mountain Precinct, and God, I felt like I was trapped in a cop movie, dude. Like, holy shit, we can do this shit? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, nutso. it was nutso in its own way. You know, it was, yeah. it was so foreign to me. Yeah. Um, and it was such a different task that I had to perform. I couldn't rely a hundred percent on my prior skill sets. Yeah. A lot of law enforcement's thinking on your feet, knowing how to talk to people. Yeah. And obviously you're there to deescalate things. It seems like, you know, it's like half negotiating coupled with, being able to read people. Yeah. You know, you get and, really good at reading people, man. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, with, with all the canine work I do, I, I work with a, a shit ton of, of cops all over the country, you know, from little podunk departments that have one dog to major metropolitan areas that have fucking 50 of them, you know, and, and mm-hmm. everything in between. But it, it's, it's really interesting for me to, you know, to talk to a lot of these guys and hear some of their stories. But, uh, but that's one thing that, that's pretty recurrent, you know, a recurring theme is, is their ability, you know, because body language is such a big fucking deal in dogs. Like, I mean, it's, it's not a big deal. It's everything. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it's such an important component to, to being a cop, too, of reading people's yeah, body language and time. how they're carrying themselves and things like that, how they talk to you and, and nod and whatever. And um, But I'm curious, you know, like from from when you so you got out of the academy you went to south precinct mm-hmm. what was that first like kind of indoctrination period the, the first couple of weeks of on the job type shit where you're like learning your right and left flank of what you can and can't do like walk it's, us through that it's overwhelming man um law enforcement is super complex because you're really the buffer between the law and criminals mm-hmm. so you have to understand both yeah you have to understand how the bad guys think in order to catch them but then you're in court getting your ass handed to you by some fucking attorney who graduated from a super cool place. And so it's, <laughs> you have to learn. It was just, I was just overwhelmed. I always said, I don't know if I'm smart enough to be a cop. Like, yeah. holy shit, because it's <laughs> five minutes of fun is now six hours of paperwork. Yeah. And you have to write these reports in such detail. And the reason why is it's going to go to court a year, two years, three years from now. And you don't remember the incident in its entirety. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember that. But it's your report that you're allowed to look at during testimony. You're like, the more you put into that report, the more accurate you're going to be. So so you got to become 
So I mean, it, it by default it makes you detailed as fuck. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Just the detail that you have to observe. So I remember being in the FTO phase, the field training phase, and your FTO would be like, "Where are we?" You're like, "Fuck, I don't know." <laughs> well, what if something happens and you get on the radio? You have to give out your location. Everywhere you drive around, you have to know where you're at. Mm-hmm. So you had to memorize the grid of your area. You had to know the hundred blocks. I'm at 1400 West Baseline, or you know wherever it is. So you're constantly looking at street signs, and because yeah, if some shit pops off, you have to know right the fuck where exactly. You're Eventually, we got GPSs, so at least your your laptop and your car would give a location. But what if you just chase the dude seven fucking blocks? Yeah. You're nowhere near your car. Yeah. So as you're doing a foot pursuit, you're looking at street signs like it just <laughs> that constant observation or. Yeah. If something happens, you have to describe a vehicle, describe a person. So in a snapshot, you have to have such a detail of what the dude was wearing, you know, mm-hmm. or chick, you know, race, gender, description, clothing, yeah. direction of travel. Like, holy fuck, it's a lot that you have to process yeah. in a split second. So to me, that was overwhelming. You know, the senior guys that I worked with, I was just in awe. Like, holy fuck, they're like really smart dudes. Yeah. Obviously... Anything you do long enough, you get better and better at it. And for me, getting on the radio, I was just like, uh, fucking shit, fuck, uh, this asshole's um, going that way. Uh, and also, you know, what's funny is uh, the the military phonetic code is different than the law enforcement. Phon- oh, so great. reading license plates. Yeah, like you're all fucked up. I'm like, I can't even get out a damn license plate on the radio, man. Oh, fuck. Uh, oh, that's fucking priceless. <laughs> the... Um, I mean, in in terms of that, I mean, one of the things that I think most people, um, and even myself included, having never been a cop, is you know the the intricacies of it. Um, you know how how hard it really is. Yeah. You know to to navigate all of that shit at the same time. I, you know, I don't even. It's not that I would say I think I know that our law enforcement community does not get uh, proper accolades for the shit that they have to go through, you know, and, and when you couple that with just kind of the, in the last eight years, 10 years of, of, uh, just that constant negative bullshit that they yeah. get thrown at them nonstop. It's like, God damn, like I got, I don't envy those guys or you guys, man. Like, it's just that being in that position, like, holy shit. And like, I mean, talk about a rock and a hard place. Like I'm, I'm baffled by, uh, by the amount of shit those guys have to go through. And it was one of the things that, you know, again, in talking with a lot of these cops that I, I uh, conversate with and say, you know, when I was in the military, like it was, it was real fucking black and white. Like you're overseas, you're fighting somebody that looks nothing like you, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't speak the same goddamn language. You know, it's plain as day, like, you know, and you're not having to fill out reports. You don't have fucking body cams. You don't have 19 motherfuckers with cell phones videotaping your ass while you're talking to somebody. Like it's, it's so much more uh, flexible in terms of what you're allowed to do and, and not do. And, and, uh, you know, what I'm curious of is, I guess, you know, obviously, you know, it, it took kind of a break in period, you know, for you to get to that point. But, um, you know, were there any instances or experience you had that after the fact, you're like, God damn, I, I really fucked that up, you know, as a cop early on or, or at any point? Well, I tell you, the, the hardest thing for me that, that transitions into that is it's the only job I ever had where people fucking hate you. Yeah. I'm used to being liked. I was the class clown as a kid, you know, as a team guy. You know, you're kind of a popular dude. Everyone loves team guys and, you know, whatever. Everything was kind of shits and giggles. Like, it was a good vibe. Whereas a cop, like, motherfuckers hate you 
just, just because. Yeah. And you eventually realize like they don't hate you, they just hate the uniform. Yeah. They hate the establishment of it. Yeah. They just they hate what you represent. Or I mean, we always jokingly say they hate you till they need you. <laughs> you know, someone's bleeding on the front line, even the thugs will call nine one one. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. So and it would shoot you when you fucking show up. Yeah, oh, yeah, that happens, man. So it was a tough transition. For me, it was that that mental shift of damn dude like there's just people that fucking hate you even kids flipping you off in the neighborhoods and shit yeah throwing so, fucking rocks and shit yeah, yeah it was tough man it was just that like realization of like you're just you're around misery like nobody calls you cuz it's like hey we're having a barbecue come over it's like <laughs> yeah. something bad happened it's yeah. it's this person's worst 15 minutes of their life and and then you go to the next call and the next call and so if you ever wonder why a cop's grumpy you That's don't know what call he just came from. Yeah. You know, it could have been a a call where some infant was stabbed by a babysitter or something, and now he's dealing with your fucking barking dog complaint, and he's yeah. like, I really don't give a shit about your barking dog. Yeah. You think he's rude, but he just saw a dead baby or a car on fire with, you know, whatever. You know, yeah. there's, there's bad things that cops see. Um, for me, my overseas service, I was able to compartmentalize that. Yeah. I didn't really bring it home. Whereas a cop, you're 30 minutes from the house. So, of course, you bring shit home that you saw on the street. Right down the street. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, story after story of, I mean, I, without a doubt, saw more dead things in people in law enforcement than I ever did overseas. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and again, it's that 30-minute transition you have to turn the light switch off as opposed to that two-day plane flight. Yeah. By the time you get home, you're... You're fairly back in the game, whereas as a cop, man, you you could have had a really bad day, and then you're home, and mm-hmm. as soon as your foot's in the door, you're, you you got to be dad and husband, yeah. and so it's, a, it's a, a quick transition. So hats off to the brothers and sisters still doing it, because it, it takes its toll on you, man. No, I, I, yeah. I mean, like I said, I having not been in that position, but, but being around it a lot, you know, a lot more than most people, I, you know, I see... Uh, you know, the toll that it takes. And I'm, I'm routinely impressed with, um, you know, the, the thin blue line as it were, and, and and their ability to handle that with such equanimity in terms of, you know, of just being able to, you know, being faced with just a a shit sandwich and being able to handle it and, and be the buffer between evil and every fucking buddy else. Yeah, You know, I mean, they, they are the, the bumper that exists between fucking good and bad. You know, and, and the fact that they don't get more, you know, both latitude and forgiveness and, and credibility and, and appreciation that they do, I think, is a fucking Greek tragedy. Absolutely. You know? um, and and it, really, it really bugs the shit out of me. And I, I, and I hope, my hope is that for anybody out there listening that doesn't have much experience with law enforcement, I know there's a lot of brothers in blue and, and green and, and, you know, Border Patrol and whatever that listen to this, but uh, know that you're fucking service is well goddamn appreciated in this household uh, i can i can tell you that much but uh, i hope that you know episodes like this bring to the forefront a, a much greater both realization and appreciation for what uh for what the brothers and sisters in blue do you know and and uh i'll uh, i'll save the rest of it for when we wrap this episode up but um but you know moving past you know kind of the coming into your own as it were as a as a patrol guy you know from 2007 until about 2016 or so you know is when you were there i mean that's a that's a pretty significant amount of time Mm -hmm. Um, now obviously you did you know patrol for a number of years but then you got into 
we'll call it the sexier stuff. You know, nothing <laughs> against the patrol guys out there, but but uh, they're you the know, sled dogs, they're the hard workers. Yeah, man. I mean, like that's the. That, I mean, you know, the, I mean, that's the bulk of the work that needs to be done, and that's the fucking reality of it. Like, yeah, you know, j- to me, it's it's very similar to the military, like patrol, infantry, whatever. Yeah. Like it's you know, you need motherfuckers Putting out there work, yeah. grinding it out day in day out, and and that's. That is what keeps fucking law and order in, in communities, you know. But yeah. but there's another side that, um, you know, obviously that's where more movies are made and books are written about and, and people are, I think, inherently more interested in because the of the rarity of it. But um, from a narcotics and undercover work and, and things of that nature, I know that because of it not being that long ago that there's a number of things that you can't discuss, but, uh, but there are several that you are, and, and uh, we're going to get into that. Um, walk me through kind of chronologically, you know, from patrol, how long you did that and then moving into the, into the narc and undercover stuff. Yeah, it was pretty quick, actually. I want to say. That's what she said. <laughs> right. I know. I'm still working on that. <laughs> Eight times a day. You ain't lasting four hours. I know. Bro. I got a hair trigger, man. I got like that, the equivalent of the competition gun with the hair trigger. Got a two pound trigger. Oh, man. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it, uh, I think part of it had to do with my military background. Yeah. Uh, obviously. You know, there were people in the precinct and department that knew what I did before and they were interested. Um, especially when I came in, there weren't a lot of vets that had left the military or contracting. So I was kind of the first wave of weirdos to come back from overseas. And so there was the curiosity factor. Um, so I think I was about a year and a half into it. Uh, and I got approached in the locker room by a, a yeah, guy who's now like a dear friend. Yeah, it was like- Where the, is this going? Well, it was like the Top Gun scene. <laughs> yeah. We were in towels. I was Maverick. Iceman came up. I was like, what's up, bro? Uh, so kind of- me with the towel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I was basically approached because of my background and then, you know, the way I look, the tattoos and stuff. And so, uh, so my buddy's like, hey, uh, if you've ever been interested in this kind of a thing, you know, you could do like a temp. I know you're a patrol sergeant. We're good friends. We were back on patrol back in the day. This might be something you're good at. Your demeanor, you're kind of a relaxed dude. Uh, some cops are kind of robotic and preachy mm-hmm. and usually the the younger goody-goody guys, you know, they're not too good at it. But I was more of the relaxed, like, hey, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right? You, you remind me of somebody. <laughs> Polly Shore, maybe. <laughs> Polly Shore and Maverick had a kid. Yeah, we need a, we need a stoner <laughs> undercover guy. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're our guy. Yeah, right, dude. In fact, he told me, uh, "Don't shower, don't shave, just come you're into like, work." I'm done, like, dude. I'm already I, not doing. I that. can do this. Yeah, doing fuck. That. I think I found a job in law enforcement. I could do. Just be a dirtbag and show up. Just be yourself, buddy. So I was like, dude, I can I can do a temp. Like that's great. This would be fucking awesome. So. He uh, and my patrol sergeant were buddies from back in the day. And so my boss was like, yeah, dude, have fun. Uh, I'm really trying not to use his name in reference, but this dude is just kind of a wild dude. He's a, he's a funny fucking dude. And so uh, I had a great time with him. So he thought that he would get me wet with my experience being plain clothes at the homeless shelter. And my first hand-to-hand transaction was buying crack at the homeless shelter. <laughs> And I got to be honest with you, dude, my feelings were hurt. <laughs> I blended into the homeless shelter and not one person said, are you a cop? You're like, uh, I was gross. like, God. They felt bad for you. I looked like one of these dudes. I was like, this isn't good, man. Like, how You're is this? a natural Clark. Dude, I'm oh, like, God. So it was kind of like a weird experience, man. Um, so I was on a temporary assignment. I forgot how long my temp was for. Uh, a couple weeks, we were running around, and he was just kind of slowly introducing me to how things work and stuff and to see if I was digging it. But I got to be honest, it's weird. 
Uh, obviously, it was nothing like, you know, uh, one of your other guest experiences. If you're listening, bro, you the man. This is all just basic street level stuff. But being introduced into it slowly, I got to admit, I was pretty nervous. Yeah. Because I'm a pretty genuine dude. Like, I don't like to bullshit people. Um, I'd rather be the guy that throws on a fucking plate carrier and kicks your fucking door. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like you're making friends with these motherfuckers, and and I also didn't know the lingo, yeah. So I was kind of quiet, and I would I would shy up in my opinion. Um, but you learn little tricks, little icebreakers. Like cigarettes are always a good icebreaker. If someone's asking questions, you can burn one or offer them one. And so I learned some of the little tricks to kind of keep things more natural. But dude, you find yourself in some like tweaker's apartment, and our little trick was like, hey, can I use the bathroom? And that was your chance to do a little recce. But, uh, you know, you don't know if someone's in the next room with weapons. Are we going to get jacked? And, you know, you always have a little, you know, little QRF team somewhere nearby that if certain things are But that, I mean, past 30 seconds is 10 lifetimes in that environment. Or depending on the area, maybe they have to be outside the neighborhood and it's yeah. a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, so we had our system, which I won't disclose, of, of how to alert the, uh, the boys coming in to rescue the day. But, yeah, you're on your own for a while. Yeah. Um, and so I had a lot of questions, you know, like, well, what do you do about names? What do you do about like guns? I mean, they don't, they know that cops carry Glocks or what if someone asks you to, Hey, hit this joint or, you know, there were a lot of questions I had yeah. that, uh, uh, I won't go over policies and procedures, but my friend, uh, kind of covered and kind of put my mind at ease. And so there were some, some tricks that said, all right, I think I can do this. But at, at the time, to be honest, it made my wife nervous. She was like, well, what if we're at fucking Walmart and you see one of these dudes? Yeah. Like, what do we do? And I'm like, fuck, I don't know. So <laughs> then the next day I'm asking my bro, like, well, what if we're at Walmart? You know, <laughs> it kind of made everybody nervous. Shit, yeah. Um, so to kind of segue into an event that happened, we were going to work this one neighborhood. And again, he was getting me used to doing hand-to-hands and kind of how the, the business works. So we have our dinner and we're kind of plotting what we're going to do and go into this area. Well, I had worked that area uh, in patrol, but I wasn't too worried about them recognizing me because there's a bunch of us and I hadn't been on the street that long. But I knew that area was a bad neighborhood. It was a crip neighborhood and there was a lot of crack being slung in there and stuff. So I went from the driver's position to he wanted me to get some experience to do hand-to-hands from a vehicle. And I'm already nervous just based on my prior experiences. Vehicles are a bad place to be if shit goes down because your mobility is almost none. So we leave our little launch point from the restaurant we're at. And I remember asking him, like, hey, dude, would it make you nervous if I pre-staged my Glock under my leg? Because I'm afraid by the time you peel through layers of clothes, yeah. if we're getting jacked, like, I'm fucking done. He goes, no, bro, do what you do. I said, well, I just don't want to make anyone nervous. Like, I, I don't really know how you guys roll. So I pre-staged. I'm in the passenger seat of this van. And uh, the van was set up a certain way. Um, we had a tactical team that was disguised in this van. Uh, we called it inappropriately the Chomo van. <laughs> it was a shady looking van. Uh, two two crusty dudes up front. And uh, so I pre-staged my Glock, uh, luckily being left-handed. That's very advantageous for yeah. anything that might happen outside of my passenger window. And so the pistol grip of the Glock was sticking out of my leg. So I would slouch and just kind of put my hand over it like I was kind of just covering my junk or something. Um so without going into too much detail of, of the situation, because there's still people that are active um, related to this, um, the hand-to-hand went bad, and I ended up uh, through the window having to shoot a dude five times. 
Um, that's also why I'm not a fan of the 40 cal. Because yeah. um, dude's still with us. I was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> well, not necessarily pissed, but you know what I mean. Yeah. If you're going to do the deed. Yeah, um, but I, I did get a hit. I severed his spine and he's in a wheelchair. I, I won't disclose uh, any further than that. But I was like, all right, bro, whatever. It's really neither here nor there. But it was a very tense situation. It was very up close. It was very fast. It was very, it was an oh shit moment for sure. Yeah. Um, but luckily I had had the thought to pre-stage my weapon where I did. Yeah. And, uh, and that ended up being a good thing. Um, everyone else that was involved in the situation thought that it was me taking rounds. Um, but I had a, a, a good enough reaction time because of how I had set things up. And it was just kind of pure, that Forrest Gump luck I keep talking yeah. about. So it was kind of... Uh, there's always a little comedy in every situation. So obviously being a shooting overseas is way different than a shooting stateside. <laughs> it almost seemed as soon as I, I blinked my eyes, the SWAT team was there, which never happens. Those dudes take like <laughs> hours to get there. Yeah, fashionably I, I, late. I remember uh, we were holding on an alleyway and I look back and here's these dudes in their full count. I'm like, holy fucking shit. So cavalry showed up. Yeah, like fucking ASAP, dude. So it turns out they were conducting some training going back to their station, which was nearby, and they happened to hear the, we call it a 998 officer-involved shooting come out. And so they were like, oh, fuck, that's like right here. So that's how the ninjas showed up so quick. I was like, holy fuck, you guys are good. Um, so kind of the, it started to unfold. Like now your whole world opens up. The city swarms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was still an active scene. Uh, one of the dudes had got away. There were three people on the transaction that were involved. Um, I shot one. He was bleeding on the sidewalk. There were two other people. One had scooted. We had one in custody. So you're immediately whisked away by a supervisor. Um, so I was with uh, some chick sergeant. But my patrol sergeant, I was on temporary assignment at this time. So my patrol sergeant comes over and says, hey, this is my dude. I got him. So we sit in the patrol car. We're not allowed to talk about the incident per policy, but he's like, dude, are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Everything's cool. Um, so immediately the union shows up um, and they get an attorney. And so you go into this, we call it the Mac van, where it's like they got snacks in a bathroom and the attorney talks to you. <laughs> That's my kind of van. Dude, it's, it's kind of comfy. I did not own the van, oh, bro. You fucking in bastard. that moment. So Hell Week in the Mac van. Damn. Yeah. All right. I just realized that. Uh, I'm so disappointed. I, I know. I'm sorry, dude. So I'm kind of nervous, like, damn, dude, this is like some serious shit. Like yeah. you shoot someone stateside, it just because yeah, just you're a moment. cop, you don't got superpowers, bro. You're now a suspect in a homicide because yeah. dude's on his way to the hospital bleeding. Yeah. They don't know if he's going to live or die. So my attorney says, you're going to probably do a walkthrough with homicide, but you don't have to. You have to talk to internal affairs, but your walkthrough with homicide is optional. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well... Would it hurt me or help me? Well, it's neither here nor there, which is like horrible advice because the decision's back on my shoulder. So I said, well, I have nothing to hide. Like I'm, I just didn't walk into a Walmart and blast somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did my walkthrough with Homicide. And this is kind of the funny part. Real crusty old dude. Typical detective like Nick Nolte from fucking 48 <laughs> Hours or something. Yeah. Just this crusty old like dude. Gary Busey from Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, dude. Kind of one of them dudes. Yeah. And I could tell he'd been on the job for a while. And he's like, how long you been on the department? I'm like, year and a half. And he's like, <laughs> it goes, in your plain clothes already? I was like, oh, no, I'm just on a temp. And he goes, what? <laughs> he goes, how long you been on your temp? I go, three days. Yeah. And he goes, oh. 
like, holy shit, you're off to a good start. I was like, I don't fucking know what's going on, bro. I'm just, I was like, I just work here. No, I'm just on a ride along. I don't know what happened, dude. I signed a waiver. Dude, so uh, so luckily he was cool. He saw the humor in it, and he knew I was a, a junior dude. So you know, he uh, I felt like the the questions went appropriately. Like he wasn't gunning for me. Obviously, they got to get on tape and they they walk you through the scene and all this stuff. And so I was there. Uh, and before we did the walkthroughs, he goes, "Hey, is there anyone you need to call? Because the news is going to pop off. There's been a shooting." And it's in an area where I'm sure loved ones know you work. Do you need to call someone? I'm like, yes, I'm going to call my wife. Well, my wife, being from Thailand, a little bit was lost in translation because <laughs> in, in my precinct, there's shootings every fucking day. Yeah. She didn't know that I was a shooter in a shooting. She so she was try. like, okay, okay, I'll see you soon, honey. You know, her <laughs> cute little, sorry, baby. Her little accent. Uh, so I'm doing my walkthrough with homicide. Brum, brum, brum. I'm like, can I answer that? He goes, okay, off tape. And she goes, where are you, honey? You, you in there? I'm like, honey, I've been in a shooting. Like, this is fucking serious. I can't, I can't talk. Like, I got to go. Bye. So I do my walkthrough with Homicide. That and that, accent's that takes forever, right? <laughs> that takes forever. So when you're done with Homicide, you got to go to Internal Affairs. Yeah. So I'm like, fuck. That's like some dude. shit out of a movie. Like, oh, Internal dude. Affairs is showing up. Like, shit just got serious. Dude, yeah. Because now Homicide's got whatever they need. And now internal affairs wants their hooks in you. I'm like, oh my God, dude. I think my shooting was like at eight at night. Now with IA, it's like two, three in the morning. So I'm just like batshit crazy. I'm still kind of pumped, like, yo, I shot it, dude. Holy fuck, you know, this is, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? And uh, this is definitely the closest engagement I've ever had, dude. Yeah. So I was like pretty fucking like wired. Like, this is pretty. So my wife calls again. I'm like, can I answer my phone? Now she's pissed. Like, she thinks I snuck off to a strip club or something. Like, at two in the morning, where are you? I'm like, honey, there's been a fucking shooting. Like, I just, I can't. So I clear fucking IA. It's like 7 a.m., dude. God damn. And they give you a police escort back to your apartment. My wife's, like, in bed. I go to my apartment. I don't know, it's 7.30, 8 a.m. It's like 12 hours after the incident. I'm just like... You know, can't even think from getting drilled questions. And I go upstairs and she's like, why you been so long? I don't understand. So I'm like, get downstairs, turn on the news. <laughs> so she turns on the news and she's like, oh, shit. And I'm like, yeah, holy fuck. It's been a long day, you know. So it was kind of the, the comedy in that whole situation, man. Jesus so that Christ. was that was my introduction into to that, that community, work. yeah. So eventually, I ended up testing uh, formally into that process, and I got a slot there. Yeah. And so I continued, you know, doing some work with that unit for a while. And so it was, uh, it was definitely a, a rough takeoff. The rest of the flight yeah. was smooth, no turbulence. Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> it was shit. fairly uneventful. So it was just Can a you, rough start. Yeah, no shit. I mean, that's drinking from the fire hose. It's, well, it's funny, <laughs> you know, the former guest that you were alluding to. Mm. Uh, Jay Dobbins that we had on a couple couple episodes ago had kind of a similar experience. Like four days on the job, he gets fucking shot in the chest and yeah. you know, almost dies. And it's like, you know, like there seems to be a recurring theme. It like it's almost like the like clearing a house, like it's the fatal funnel. Like it's, yeah. it's jumping through the or as soon as you cross the threshold into the room, like that's the danger zone. You know, it no is. different than into that work. Like that early periods, like we, where you're just heads on a swivel, but you don't really know what the fuck's going on. It's different because when you're in uniform, people run from you. When you're undercover, they come to you. Yeah. Like it's danger close. You're sucking these people in. Yeah. Well, they're sucking you into their world, but 
the appearance is. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're this close. You can't pat them down. You don't have a vest on. Yeah. You know, it's 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 fucking weird, man. Yeah. I just I never was comfortable. I never caught the the itch for it. I'd rather just put on a vest and a helmet and kick your door. You know, I just, I didn't. Overtly offensive. I was just always nervous. You know, what if this or what if that? There's so many what ifs because it's not as scripted. Yeah. You know, as dynamic as uniform service is, it's still, there's a formula to it. There's still almost a choreographed routine to, you know, this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Undercover, it's 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 by the seat of your pants and it's personality based. Like, you're, there's not this barrier between you and the suspect. Like you're yeah. pretending to be a suspect with a suspect. Like you're mm. you're bonding with these dudes. You're having normal conversations with them. Yeah. It's it's fucking weird, man. Uh, real quick before we get into some of the psychology behind that, can you disclose? Did uh, when that went bad? I know you can't say a whole lot about it, but did did dude fucking draw down on you? And that's what solicited that. He respect? did. He yeah. tried to jack us. Yeah, absolutely. Did he get any rounds off? No, none. Fucking easy there, quick draw. It was because I pre-staged <laughs> my weapon the way I did, yeah, dude. And I just, luckily I had just that thought, dude. I just, yeah. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Um, but I do know like in Afghanistan, we started uh, zip tying our Serpa holsters up on our chest rigs because yeah. you can't get to that drop holster. Yeah. Someone comes up to your window. Yeah. yeah. So it was kind of that thought back to those days. I'm like, hey, can I put this weapon here and not make anyone nervous? No, bro, do it. Yeah. Had I tried to pull some layers of clothing back, and he's, I mean, dude. Yeah, I mean, that's the same same exact reason, even though I've never fired out of a vehicle, um, you know, in in terms of, uh, you know, over here or anything like that. But, you know, I always carry, I carry a a little Ruger LCR 357 mag, I mean, tiny ass little inch and a half J-frame, no hammer Mm -hmm. in the console for that reason. Because, like, even though I'm always strapped, uh, in my waistband with what I'm carrying, uh, when you're, especially being a left-handed in the driver's seat with the seatbelt yeah. on, like motherfucker, you better have have him a hot minute, yeah, because that's how long it's going to take to get your shit out and get it get it on on you know ready. But yeah, um, so yeah, I, I always carry an extra. I mean, almost like a backup gun, but I always keep it either in the door or in the console, like between the seats, so I can grab yep. that motherfucker you know real quick. But that's a, that's some wild shit. I mean, it, you know, it's. And to me, you know, it's one of the things that that I hope people realize is that, you know, this is a guy, you know, who's been overseas, you know, as a SEAL, as a contractor, you know, and still like the the threat that exists here stateside on the streets is no less fucking dangerous. And and in a lot of ways, it's more dangerous, you know, because there's there's such an ever present, you know, reality of of you being a a fucking beacon or a goddamn strobe light of law Mm -hmm. enforcement that everybody else can see. I mean, it's kind of like. When you're at home at night, and this is one of the, uh, you know, security measures that, you know, we talk about a lot in terms of, of being a, a preventative. But, you know, a lot of times people hear something, they turn their fucking lights on, mm-hmm. you know, which is the dumbest thing you can do if, if it's nighttime and you hear something like keep your goddamn lights off. But but that's what it is. It's like being in a house at night with your lights on. Like, that's what mm-hmm. being a uniform cop is. Yeah. You know, because everybody else knows you're a cop and you don't have a fucking clue what. Yeah. what it's you know. the unknown. That's yeah. Every time you leave the gate to that precinct, you don't know what the fuck's yeah. going to happen. At least. Yeah. When you're overseas, you leave the gates. You're pretty sure you know what's going to yeah. happen or what's possible. Yeah, your, your guards As a up, cop, you know. it's it's yeah. mostly boredom. Yeah, but it's that ten percent of what the fuck that, that catches people. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, the unknown, man. Yeah. So once once you got into the um in, in the actual slot on the on the UC work, you know, I, I'm curious, especially being in Phoenix, you know, being in Arizona in a border state, like. 
you know, you hear on the news and, and just in kind of mainstream media or just our, our pop culture for that matter, whether it's Breaking Bad or, you know, all the host of fucking different Netflix series or whatever that, um, you know, that have um, shows about, you know, whether it's human trafficking or drop mm-hmm. houses or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, being on the south side of Phoenix like that, like that's a pretty fucking uh, kind of a highway for bullshit. Like, you know, can you share some experiences that you had that, that kind of stand out as, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, cartel stuff or undercut, you know, whatever it is like that, uh, you know, that, that people would be interested in hearing about that you've, you've dealt with. Yeah, definitely. So when I was on my detail, I caught a whisper in the hallway about uh, camouflage and night vision. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, you, you could do that as a cop? Like, wh- yeah. what the fuck is this? Yeah. So they said, well, hey, it's, it's this detail that does this. Um, basically, they're stalking motherfuckers in the desert. And I'm like, what? As a fucking cop, dude? Holy <laughs> shit. Like, who do I need to call? Yeah. So they give me the dude's name and number. So I call this dude out of the blue because I'm so pumped. He's yeah. night vision and camouflage. I'm, you had me. <laughs> so I call this dude, and he's basically like, who the fuck are you? And how would you get my number? And I said, well, I'm assigned to this squad. And he goes, who's the sergeant? So I told him. And he goes, all right, let me call you back. So he called my boss. And my boss spoke well of me and told of my background. And so this dude calls me back. Oh, you were a SEAL? He goes, yeah, okay, man. You know, you can come ride with us, see how you like it. And so it was a desert interdiction task force. Oh, shit. All like human trafficking? (laughs) No, drug trafficking. We were hunting the drug traffickers. And uh, so there's uh, a system they have in a certain location that they use. And uh, it was, I was like, holy shit, as a cop, we got like, fuck, dude. It's like Border Patrol. If I can Better call. night vision goggles than I ever had in the military yeah. or as a contractor. I was like, damn, dude, these guys are legit. <laughs> so um, I had a good time with it. My run undercover got derailed, unfortunately, because of manpower issues with Phoenix. I think fully staffed, we're supposed to have about 3,000 dudes. We were down to like 2,500 dudes. So they started downsizing specialty squads and putting dudes back in uniform. So my unit was uh, one of the ones that got axed and put back in uniform. So then it was like, you can't show me how the other half lives. And then now I'm like back on the beat, like, oh, no fault of my own. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if you fuck up or whatever, guys get sent back to the street. Or if you promote, you got to go back as a sergeant and then go back to whatever unit. Yeah. So I was kind of bummed, like, dude, I was getting in a rhythm here. Like, you know, yeah. now I discovered this desert shit. And yeah. I wanted to make that my permanent home, you know? And yeah. and so I got thrown back on the street, but uh, I was lucky enough to kind of stay in the same area. And and so, but I was a little bummed, like, damn, once you know, you know, it's... Yeah, the it's, dark side. Well, it'd be kind of like going from the teams back to the fleet. Like, yeah. do you yeah, know no. those guys get hotels and <laughs> rental cars? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> And, uh, was there were there any uh, any run-ins in terms of of, of any of the other uh, undercover work that you did that you can share that um, you know that were that were pretty hairy that way? Not necessarily shooting involved, but I know like some of the stories that uh, you know from the ATF agent Jay that that uh, you know he shared. Like one of the things that that I found really fascinating and, and truly remarkable about you know, kind of the acting job that exists is just that, again, that psychology, it sounds like it came a little more natural for him than it did for you Yeah. in terms of your desire to be more of an overt offensive type mm-hmm. of type of application. But still, I mean, you spent some time having to gain trust. I mean, I mean, and to me, like whether it's street level shit or, you know, full blown national, you know, federal law enforcement level, like the, the application is the exact same, like mm-hmm. that process that, that exists is, 
is no different. Um, you know, and I'm curious, like what, you know, what, what were some experiences that you had in terms of gaining people's trust and, and, uh, you know, anything you can share as far as that goes that, uh, that you can relate? Yeah, it was tough. Um, I learned a lot from my team leader who brought me into the community. Um, I also did a security job with a dude who was a FBI undercover guy and he was the money guy for high level Coke deals. So he used to tell me like, dude, I'd be in bed the night prior. I couldn't sleep. I'm going over scenarios. And so I kind of found myself in that boat. Like when I knew something big was going on, cause we always try to catch the bigger fish and get info on it. Basically, where did you get this shit? And so the bigger the fish got, the more nervous it gets. Like, you know, fuck, what if this or what if that? You you can what if yourself to death. So I, I would find myself kind of psyching myself out. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woo-hoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games, so join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. That's why I thought, dude, I'm I'm more the dude that just wants to come through your front door. Like I know there's risks with that, but like to me, there's not that many what ifs. Yeah, it's it's kind of one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that stems from our background. You yeah. know, you're going to assault an objective. One of two things is going to happen. <clears throat> Either they die or you die. That's it. It's yeah. it's fairly cut and dry for what it is. Whereas in this world, it's uh, it's it's a big gray area, man. Mm-hmm. It's just it's weird. And I'm I'm somewhat empathetic in that I did. I don't want to say I started to bond with these people. I never lost sight of the mission or what we were there for. But in a way, I felt kind of like, fuck, dude, these guys are fucked up people, but is there a way to help them, or why are they here? I still just got to question stuff, not why I was there or, or what the mission was, but I just, I've always been kind of a huggy bear. Like I said, I was raised by a single mom. Like, I can see why people might go down the wrong path. Maybe mm-hmm. they just made the wrong friend when they were younger. I think I put too much, the proper word's not even emotion. I just, I, I thought about the situations I was in a little too much. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so cut and dry to me, because you're dealing with people, people that have families, Maybe even have fucking dinner with dude and their family, or you know what I mean. Like you're yeah. you're pretending to be a bro, and there was a part of me that because I consider myself a pretty genuine dude, um, I'll make peace for a while. But there's a point where you're gonna know if I don't like you or not. Yeah, um, I try to avoid conflicts, but at some point I will put the cards on the table. Whereas in this profession, you, you know, know you're close. you got a mission to accomplish, so. 
you can't put your cards on the table. So for me, that was the most difficult part is actually interacting with somebody's lifestyle yeah. and then disrupting it. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a different experience for me. Did you, did you ever have conversations like that with fellow, fellow guys? Like, Hey man, fucking like this dude, like, yeah, I know he's mixed up in some bad shit, but like, God damn, like, yeah. did you find yourself having those types of conversations with fellow, fellow, uh, law enforcement officers? Or? A little bit. Law enforcement, um, people are a little more shy to show their emotions or concerns or fears. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's probably the same in the military, except the community you and I come from, we might share those things a little bit more with each other than the average service member. But I noticed a lot of cops bottle shit up inside. Yeah. Um, they don't, it's kind of a bravado thing. When you and I were in a platoon, we're on top of each other 10 months out of the year, 24 hours a day. So our personal lives are going to bleed together. Whereas a cop, you go home. Yeah. And so it's, you kind of bleed your sorrows alone at home. And then you come back to work and pretend everything's all right. So my team leader who brought me into the community, we definitely had some conversations that were, were pretty in depth, but other members of the team, not so much, or other dudes at the precinct. Yeah. There's kind of that like fake in the funk, like everything's okay. You don't want to be seen as that weak link or, oh, maybe he's not good for this job. We should pull him out or whatever the scenario may be. I think cops kind of, they paint that smile on a little bit more than yeah. than most people because it's it's kind of how you have to be dealing with all this drama anyway. You just yeah. kind of deal with it. And, well, yeah, because there, there's obviously there's the work aspect, but then there's the, the co-worker mm-hmm, politics of it. That, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I can I can see how that'd be that'd be the case. Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, while, while you were doing that, was there an element of personal life where th- that started to take a, a noticeable toll on uh, on your your wife and and even for that matter, man, I don't know what I'm curious to hear about what your relationship with your with your children is, but um, you know, did did you find that uh, that doing that type of work, like I would imagine, if I you know put myself in that position, like for sure it would. Um, did it, did that have a toll? Did it play a role and, and, uh, how did it impact your relationship with your kids? If at all? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, my daughter was still with us at that time. So she was probably 14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were conversations that had to be had again. Everyone was kind of concerned of that scenario of well, what if one of these dudes you're working sees us somewhere. What do we do? What do we say? You know what I mean? So did, did that ever happen? No, yeah. no. Luckily I worked down south and I lived way up north. So, yeah. you know, they had to have some gas money to get where I'm at, <laughs> luckily. But it's still creepy. You're in the same city. It's not like, oh, I'm going to fuck these dudes up and fly home from Iraq. Like, yeah. there's no chance I'm going to see Habibi at, you know, the Circle K. <laughs> well, maybe a different different Habibi. Maybe at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do I know you? Oh, yeah, I recognize you. <laughs> I know that face. <laughs> so, Oh, shit, that's on camera. That's <laughs> all right. Go on YouTube and you'll uh, you'll get that fucking uh, the inside <laughs> the inside link on that one. So yeah, it was a little unnerving that yes, we were still in the same city. So there were certain conversations um, that I had with my family that you know if, if if something happens, this is what you should do and this is what I'm gonna mm-hmm. attempt to do. You know, nothing ever goes flawlessly, but this is where my mind's at and this is what you should be doing. And so you had to kind of read them in a bit, yeah. you know, to the program. And so I think it definitely. Um, made my wife uncomfortable. And I think my daughter who was with us at the time maybe didn't understand it to the level that my wife did. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny after my shooting, I saw a dude who was on another undercover squad. 
he saw me at the stone. He's like, bro, he's all high-fiving <laughs> me and stuff. And so I did have that uh, on-duty relationship that I met in a store, but it was with a bro, thankfully, yeah. who was, he looked dirtier than I did. He yeah. all, you know, tatted up and stuff. And so yeah. it was kind of like we were celebrating work business in a public place, which is... Yeah. Who knows who's tailing him or whatever. But yeah, uh, so, yeah, it was different. It was a different dynamic. Um, but luckily with our department, there are details and projects that go way deeper than what I did. Yeah. Um, and talking to some of those guys, man, like, yeah, I definitely don't want to do what you do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. it was very similar to, to, to what Jay Dobbins was doing and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know how the fuck you guys do it. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm losing my mind, you know, doing what I'm doing. I, I enjoyed it. There's definitely, a satisfaction portion of the piece in that you can get more information by doing that than you can rolling around in a marked car all day. Yeah. I mean, you can really solve some problems in a certain area pretty quick, fairly efficiently, um, utilizing that tool. Um, but it does take a special person, man. And I'm just, I don't think I was wired that way just based yeah. on how I was brought up and what I did in the service. I'd much rather put on some gear and go for it than, yeah. Just fucking it's, man to man, like yeah, yeah, dude. It's it's like up close stuff, and so my team leader loved it. Yeah, he just fuck, he just. Yeah. I was in awe at uh, just how like natural everything yeah. seemed. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it was even weird for me to witness his interactions with people because then I felt like, wait, I know he's full of shit, and this, yeah. you know, it just it was such a weird dynamic, man. Yeah. Um, was there? A, I know it was primarily narcotic stuff and and you know lower street level stuff, but it was two things. Was there ever any human trafficking uh, stuff involved in, in what you were doing? There was. There was a separate project not related to the narcotics that uh, we were involved with uh, busting prostitutes and stuff. Yeah. And so we'd basically proposition them, get the deal done. and then, Which you uh, were a natural at. Well, I spent some time <laughs> in Thailand. <laughs> Wait, we got to score hookers? Hold on. Clark, we need you for this special gig. Buddy. I got this. <laughs> Um, and we basically offer them hooker rehab, go to jail or go to this little program. And yeah. we'd see the same chicks out two weeks later. But yeah. some of them were victims of actual trafficking, yeah. you know, whether they were lured by Internet scams or a pimp or whatever. And yeah. so some of these young ladies, we were able to kind of liberate from their profession and stuff. A lot of them were just crackheads that just were doing it to do what they had to do. Yeah. I saw more of the human trafficking element on patrol because we would get a call that, hey, the house next door, there's a van that pulls up every night at midnight and the, you know, whatever suspicious activity. And there would be like, you know, 40 illegals packed in a living room and stuff. And, yeah. and so it was more on the, the patrol side of things. Um, when I was on the desert interdiction squad, we were hunting dope, but we saw a shit ton of human activity. We didn't interdict it because that wasn't our mission, but yeah. it something you I pick? was in awe, like, holy shit. We'd go up onto a, a position with our, our fleer and just, the desert's alive at night. Like, yeah. holy fuck, how many people, um, you know, you see the remnants of it, the trash and the footprints and, and uh, people get injured and, yeah. and just. I, I mean, I remember even just training in the SEAL teams out at our desert training facility, yeah. facility out in, you know, Eastern California where you'd run into them occasionally, you know. Yeah. There's, there's a, a couple instances where, you know, you'd just stumble onto dead bodies or um, there was one one instance where not, it wasn't one in the platoon I was in, but we were out at, at Nyland at the time and uh, doing, you know, immediate action drills, IADs, mm -hmm. you know, big, big gunfight scenarios basically. And, and a dude got shot, yeah. um, you know, because he was walking through an area that, that we were lighting up, not we again, you know, as a community, I guess, but, you know, or, or even at Laguna rolling up on people that had frozen to death or whatever, mm -hmm. but... Um, 
you know, I know that, 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 that corridor running up through Tucson up into Phoenix, yeah. like, you know, there's a hotbed of activity. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you know, I, I know it was outside your lane a bit, but, uh, was there any other, other experiences on the human, human trafficking side coming up, uh, out of Mexico that, that, uh, stuck out as being, uh, experiences for you or was it, was it just primarily narcotic stuff? No, yeah, it, it's a lot of it. We came across a lot of injured, um, some dead people. I also did a side security job. Uh, a family had a ranch north of Tucson, and so, again, we had a lot of injured people coming to our compound wanting help, and so, you know, we give them water and call Border Patrol. Yeah. Um, during the day, we would do a lot of tracking. Um, you come across rape trees where you see bras and panties up in a tree where, you know, the coyotes will stop and have their way with the females of the... Goddamn, no and shit. And so, yeah, you know, you see stuff like that, and it's just like, God, dude, what these people go through... You know, to get where they're going, injury, death, rape, Jesus and then they're Christ. they're held in some small house in South Phoenix, and the coyotes will call their family and say, "Hey, instead of two grand, it's now five grand." You know, they they basically hold them hostage. Um, so even on patrol, we would we would hit these, you know, houses and basically liberate these people from their situations. And God damn. So yeah, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, yeah. you see the struggles uh, that these people go through, and. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that happen out there in the desert. You know, you have your traffickers that come through, but then you have your rip crews that are going to come through and just, you know, knock them off for their product or, you know, hurt the people along the way. And, and then the cartels will counter that with other teams that will try to hunt the rip crews. And so it, it kind of becomes this tiered up warfare even amongst the cartel yeah. to get people in, in product across. God damn. And so... You know, seeing things like rape trees or seeing things like these drop houses where there's, you know, 40, 50, 60 people packed in a room in the conditions of, you know, nudity and shit. And, you know, so you kind of see that collapse of, of humanity like, man, it, it's almost like a slave trade. I mean, it's just people yeah. are pieces of meat for money and then they yeah. up the ante to the families. Like, you know, if you want to see your family again, this is now we want this much money, Yeah, you know? So it's this back and forth and yeah, Phoenix is just super busy, dude. And, and again, because of the narcotics, you have the gangs that come there and, and the, a lot of narcotics kind of hub from Phoenix to the East coast, West coast, or those people come there, Yeah, you know, to deal with the product. So it's a, uh, it's a very nice looking city, but I always equated it to remember when you were in the swimming pool as a kid and you saw like the little beach volleyball and people playing, but you put your goggles on and you went under the water <laughs> yeah. and you saw the hair and the toenail and the bandaid and you know, someone's fucking in the corner. You're like, Oh my God. And then you peek back up and it's the beach ball and the birds, you yeah, know, that's, that's what Phoenix, huh? Phoenix. I think any big cities like that. Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's you an know? underbelly to it. There that's is fucking pretty sinister. It is. Man. But, and, yeah. You know, for me, it's 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 interesting to hear kind of the the intricacies and the layers of of the drug trafficking route and how it intertwines. And that, like you know, that to me, it's fascinating to hear about the what you call the rip crews. And yeah, you know, it's 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 similar to you know to terrorism or, or mm -hmm. anything else in terms of there's a lot of it's like a fucking onion. You know, there's all these yeah. different layers that when you peel them away, there's there's a complexity there where it's not, you know, super black and white. There's a humanity element of the human trafficking that's not mm -hmm. not black and white, you know. And I think, you know, we on a political realm or or variant, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the border wall. And, and I mean, I'm I'm a proponent of it. I think it just makes mm -hmm. sense to to have something there. Sure. Uh, you know, is that 
you know, going to fix every problem. No, but I think like at a minimum, you got to have some shit like that. But, um, you know, but politically, I think, you know, we, we get so polarized as a nation that, um, you know, there's, there's always, it's, you know, each side, whether it's, you know, liberal or conservative, you know, oversimplifies, you know, the, the fix or whatever. And, and when you talk to guys like you that have lived in areas like that and, and fought, you know, that, that type of lifestyle and mentality and culture of coming up from there, it's, it's not so fucking simple, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of elements to it that I think, uh, that have to factor into that equation in terms of how to combat it. But do you have, do you have any insight on that or any opinion in terms of border security, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, from what I've seen and what I believe, definitely securing the border, I think, is a, a good first step. I saw the success um, when I was there in Israel. It was very active with suicide bombings in 2003. They built some walls and suicide bombings on Israel proper dropped by like 99%. Mm-hmm. When the walls, it made it harder for dudes to get shit in yeah. to these areas as opposed to before. They were walking yeah. across, driving across. Once those walls went up, um, it, it yeah, drastically halted. The, yeah, it's yeah. way harder. So the numbers went way down. Yeah. Um, the second side of that, having my wife immigrate here from Thailand make the fucking process easier and affordable and more people wouldn't do it illegally. Yeah. I probably spent 10 grand in eight years. She's actually a U.S. citizen now, but it starts with the visa and then a green card and then some freaky-ass test that I couldn't pass. That, you know, <laughs> She was reading me this test booklet, and I'm like, yeah, fuck, oh, I don't the know. Fuck Google not? it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, holy fuck, I don't know. How many seats? I'm like, I don't fucking know. And so... The money I spent, because of course you can't do the paperwork, you got to hire an immigration attorney and then he's got to fill out, you know, then there's 900 bucks for this form and it's like, holy fuck. Yeah. So if you made it like a $300 process and it takes four months, boom, yeah. you know, I mean, you, you do a background check. So I think one, secure the border. And then two, the more important factor is make it a reasonable process and people wouldn't skirt it. Yeah. Streamline it. Yeah. Make yeah. it, make it fucking reasonable that yeah. immigration's fucking nuts in yeah. fact when we we went to the immigration uh this was to get her green card so visa to green card we had an interview and the lady part of the package was bringing some pictures of you together so i'm like well who the fuck has picture pictures like everything's digital now like yeah. so i i took some from my laptop and i went to walgreens and i yeah. printed out 10 pictures and you're like shit that's the wrong one <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm like hold on that one's private <laughs> Well, and it was like pictures of me with her family, her with my family. And the lady goes, you only have 10 pictures? I'm like, how many pictures do you want? She goes, I need like 30 or 40 pictures. And I, I wanted to say, what do you want, pictures of us fucking? <laughs> like, yeah. This is me with her parents. Her with, like, Obviously, we're in different places. Like, yeah. This is not some elaborate. Yeah. So I had to mail in several more photos. I'm like, what does that really prove, man? Yeah, I mean, like if I'm staging this, it, yeah. yeah, I could stage 30 more. Yeah. I wanted to send her a fucking dick pic or something <laughs> like, you know, here it is, putting some D's and some A's, you know. <laughs> Do we get our green card? You know, fuck. So I was kind of pissed, like, uh, damn, man. Yeah. And my poor wife was nervous. It was cute. We had just recently changed our home phone number. So the lady asked her, what's your home phone number? And she's, she's like, like, I don't know. And she's like, uh... Uh, and I said, hold on, wait, this isn't fair. We yeah. just changed our fucking phone number. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I was yeah, like, sure you did. Yeah, like, I've heard that before. <laughs> Fuck, we're, right, we're done. We're we fucked. failed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. That's priceless. No, it's good. Uh, it's good insight. And I think, uh, you know, again, to me, like 
One of the things that I, I find most frustrating about this country, um, not this country, but the, the way that it works. I mean, I love the country to death. I wouldn't have served if I hadn't. But is that, you know, a lot of times the people who are, are charged with uh, fixing problems have the 30,000 foot aerial view and are fucking clueless when it comes to actually how to solve it. And to me, you know, why don't you ask somebody that, that has a fucking wife that's gone through the immigration yeah. process, like ask somebody that lives in fucking mm-hmm. Tucson, yeah. you know, that owns a ranch in South Texas. Like, you know, those are the fucking people you need to talk to. Like, mm-hmm. I don't fucking know. Motherfucker in DC sure as fuck doesn't know. Yeah. Why are you asking him? And and for that matter, I mean, not to get too off topic, but God damn it. When I watch like congressional, uh, whether they're hearings or, uh, you know, floor speeches or whatever. I'm, I'm watching most of these people that are that are congressmen uh, and senators. And I think to myself, I'm like, in any other fucking capacity, if I saw this person, I, I would honestly, I would be on the fence mm-hmm. as to whether or not that motherfucker ought to have a goddamn driver's license. Yeah. And oh, yeah. this son of a bitch is, is setting policy and drafting pieces of legislation yeah. as to how our goddamn country is supposed to work. Like, I agree, dude. How fucked up is that? Like, mm-hmm. most of these people can't even get out of their own goddamn way. I mean, somebody like Pelosi. Oh, dude. When I watch that fucking woman speak, I'm like, oh, my God, you are out of your fucking mind. Yeah, she's nuts. You know, and uh, but again, like, it's not just a pick on, on the liberal side of the house. There's plenty of conservative oh, assholes yeah. that I... Oh, yeah. That are windbags up there that are stepping over their own dick talking about things they know nothing about. Yeah. You know, rattling off a couple of spoon-fed talking points. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, how the fuck are you in charge? Yeah. You know, like, honestly, yeah. you ought to be sipping and sure watching Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. I mean, well, I- they've been in this bubble for their entire lives. And, dude, one of the things that you're, you're, you're getting near is... When did our government get so fucking old? Like, I remember when we had to take keys away from grandma because she couldn't drive. That's what I mean. This motherfucker's in Congress writing laws. like For 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, dude, you fucking, you got some, you got to go out to pasture. Like, you know, I mean, I'm. Well, you know how old people get? They get stubborn in their ways and they start thinking weird shit. If there's an age cap on the bottom end, there should be an age cap on that upper end. Because there's some some geezers in there that are (laughs) batshit crazy. Like, they're like the old dudes in the Muppets that are up there heckling everybody. (laughs) peanut gallery up there <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's it, to me it's mind-numbing but you know yeah. to me you know on a broader perspective my point with that is not to pick on old people um we love old people love old people uh to me there's there's nothing better honestly than shooting the shit with people that are you know 80 plus and asking them about you know their their insight on life but yeah. that doesn't mean i want you drafting legislation yeah. as to where our military should be involved well and there is a gap in generations too the older you get yeah. Well, what's current? And, yeah. you know, like my mom was born in the 30s. So how is she going to understand, you know, yeah, uh, kids Facebook, kids snorting <laughs> condoms through their nose or whatever yeah, they're doing now? Tide pods. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. What is that? Like, yeah, oh, never like, mind. What the fuck is a Tide Pod? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but anyway, my, you know, my point is, is that, you know, to me, like, I love getting somebody like you, you, uh, to shed some insight on you know border policy on immigration policy because you've lived it yeah you know and it's not like you're just some you know liberal asshole that's from San Francisco that you know invented a, a tech company like you served in the military you were a contractor overseas you were a fucking cop for eight years like motherfucker you you've lived it you know and and if anybody's you know perspective ought to be fucking heard and warranted it's it's somebody like yours you know and, and so I, I appreciate you sharing that but um. As we kind of wrap up the, the towards the tail end of the interview um, or bullshit session, as it were, I'm curious, you know, as you transitioned from being a, a cop to what you're doing now, which we'll mm-hmm. get into, 
Um, was, the biggest question I have is, is one, you know, was that a hard decision to, to do? And, and, um, you know, can you, can you give us a, a brief, brief look at what that was like? As far as leaving law enforcement? Yeah. Making the decision to say, you know what? Okay. I, because I mean, to me, like I did the same thing. I mean, not for quite as many years as you in terms of quote unquote public service, mm. but from 18 to 30, you know, I was working for uncle Sam and, but for you, similarly, like you'd spent most of your adult life, you know, whether it's military contractor mm -hmm. or cop, like serving the greater good or being a public servant to some degree uh, or or other. And so, you know, now you're, you know, in your early 40s and it's like, OK, I'm, I'm kind of starting over. I'm, I'm walking off the plank basically into mm -hmm. uncharted territory. What was that that experience like? I know what it was like for me. It was fucking terrifying. Yeah, this you was know, actually <laughs> scary to me because prior to that, I had transitioned into something that was similar similar enough that I, I didn't feel like a complete foreign idiot in a situation I, I like okay this is I transitioned from this to this um, this leaving law enforcement was my first leap back into the real world um, but I caught a bug early on in law enforcement uh, a lot of dudes couldn't pass the handgun qual mm -hmm. and so I would rehab shoot them I would meet them, you know, a week or two prior to the qualification and just really you fix two or three things and dudes are drilling it. Yeah. They just have bad habits because they were old timers that were trained with revolvers and they're still doing weird shit with a Glock. Uh, whatever it was within about, I mean, honestly, within about 10 minutes, I could dial them in and then I'd work with them, you know, about a half hour or so, an hour on the range. So I kind of saw like a a gift there, like something I enjoyed. Like now this person that couldn't pass the qual is well above the minimum standard, um, shooting, shooting a lot better than they were. And I, I saw the satisfaction in them and that gave me satisfaction. So I kind of caught the instructor bug. I wanted to go down to the firearms detail with Phoenix, but that's kind of a retirement community. Like there's people that have been there for 14 years and they haven't taken a report since 89. Like it's just, yeah. it's hard to get a slot down there because it's, mm -hmm. Some departments, you, you can go specialty for three years and you have to go back to patrol or five years and back to patrol. Phoenix, you could just go there and disappear. But I caught the instructor bug just helping dudes pass the qual. Around qual time, my phone would blow up and I would just meet people and kind of help them and pay it forward. So I enjoyed that, being able to translate some of my knowledge to something they could understand and become better at. So I started looking at my timeline like, all right, dude, you're in your 40s. <clears throat> Regardless of what community you're in, you're only operational for so much longer. Um, what are you going to do? Like, what's kind of your 10-year plan? And I thought, you know, teaching would be cool. I like firearms. And I'm developing this ability to, to translate it into, you know, people picking it up and doing better with a firearm. So my plan with uh, becoming a firearms trainer in the law enforcement community didn't work out because there's just no slots available. So when I got out, um, that was my goal. I wanted to uh, teach people firearms. And so I got involved with a couple different communities in the, the Austin area. And uh, I've recently branched out on my own. And I, I've been contracted out to other companies. And, and a buddy of, of mine, we formed our own mobile training team company. And so we've worked together for about a year and a half, me and my buddy JB, and uh, we have a good system that we've put in place, and, and we've really we've got a lot of positive feedback from uh, the people that we've trained, and even some of the stuff we post on social media. We'll get a question, mm -hmm. you know, uh, some law enforcement, some civilian people. Hey, uh, how do you shoot on the move? And so we'll make a video of it, 
you know, and I always believe in, uh, don't, this kind of stems from my contracting days. I don't believe in absolutes. Mm-hmm. There's more than one way to skin a cat. As long as you're safe, obviously the absolutes lie in safety. Yeah. Um, but I like to explore different ways of doing things. And so we've had a, a really good time as far as uh, the whole training thing. So that's currently where I'm at. Um, and I'm able to speak to different groups because of those different backgrounds. I have a pretty stacked deck of cards. So if I'm training with cops, yeah, they dig the fact that I was a team guy. But they're like, oh, fuck, dude was a cop. Like, yeah. he speaks our language. Yeah. So I've had a lot of success um, mainly I'm interested in training the patrol officers because their training is limited. Their ammo is limited. Yeah. Uh, most SWAT dudes are pretty squared away. Uh, their, their tactics are pretty fucking current. You know, they're, they're good to go for their mission statement. Um, but it's the patrol person, you know, the, the chicker dude, the, the that, 50 rounds a year. Yeah. That it, yeah. sucks. That's it. Some yeah. of them only shoot once a year. Yeah. And so that's kind of where my focus is, is the average patrol officer or, uh, the first time, gun buyer that just like, well, um, one of my first clients uh, had a ranch out in Texas and her husband died and he was always kind of in charge of security. But now that he's gone, well, I got to protect myself. I don't really know how to use this. And so that's really where I found a niche is kind of the, the entry level firearms people. Um, having said that, I just came back from Memphis training some, some recon dudes. So um, I've now been thrown in the deep end of the spectrum, and uh, I had a blast with those dudes. So my instructor path or career has now grown yeah. to uh, training active duty dudes. Uh, super humbling, super awesome. It was cool to see a younger generation of energized motherfuckers like we were when we were 20. Yeah. And uh, and still being able to hold your own because they'll call you out yeah. and uh, still stepping up to the plate and, and crushing a homer, you know. Because <laughs> if you fuck up, especially Marines will let you know you oh, fucked yeah. up. So yeah. I had to suck in my beer gut and go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a good journey, dude. Um, and I hope to uh, to continue it. I really enjoy the uh, the training aspect of things, man. Yeah. It's it's cool. No, that's uh, that's fucking great to hear. And and uh, you know, to me the. I know for me, you know, being able to, whether it's work with cops or military guys on the canine side, like there, there's nothing more rewarding than that, you know? Um, and it's, it's neat to see, you know, it's, it's weird being in the position of having like the younger generation, like we were always the younger generation, yeah, you know, yeah. now, now there's a younger or even two younger generations, you know, yeah. b- below us that are kind of carrying the torch, but to, you know, to be able to, to offer some insight and, and, uh, pass on any, any type of lessons learned or training knowledge or help in any way to me is, is the most fucking rewarding thing out there. You know, it, it really is, I man. I love, yeah. love working with, again, whether it's uh, law enforcement or military, um, you know, and, and being able to do that is great. And, and I love that that's what you're doing. I'm super fucking proud of, of everything that you've done. Um, you know, the, the, the journey and path that you've been on is, is one is again, that, uh, you know, is one that, that a lot of guys, you know, from our background go through and I think is, is largely, you know, under realized and underappreciated in our, in our society. And I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm fucking stoked and, and glad that you were able to, to come here and share that with us. It's interesting as hell been, uh, been great to catch up. Um, one thing that, that before we wrap this up, I do want to make sure that for everybody out there that uh you know that may be interested in, in something that you can provide where where can 
people find you on both social media and, uh, you know, whether it's website or kind of contact info so that they can get a hold of you for, for any type of instruction training like that? Yeah, definitely. Right now, the best place to get a hold of me is uh, I don't do a whole lot of social media, but I have Instagram, mm-hmm. Frogman2155 on Instagram. I just left the company I've been training under. Um, as of April 2nd. So my buddy and I are in the process of forming our own company. So there's nothing really solidified as far as website or even our company name got shot down by Texas Corporation (laughs) Commission. Like, nope, that already exists. So you got to pick a new name. I'm like, dude, it was such a great name, dude. What uh, what was it? It was Alpha Group Concepts. That's already taken, huh? Yeah, it was Alpha Group Incorporated was a company. And so Texas has, if if two of the words are the same, I'm like, damn, they're just like tech nerds. Fuck them, man. (laughs) So I was like, you know, me and my buddy's a, he's a, He'll hate me for saying this, but he's a Marine with two Purple Hearts. I love to brag about his Purple Hearts because he gets so embarrassed about it. Like He's just such a a mellow fucking dude, but a super cool story. He's an awesome dude, Um, and he's really big into the combatives. He he pioneered the Marine Corps martial arts program, so together we cover a lot of bases. He adds the combatives aspect, and I add the firearms, and of course we cross-train each other, so now both of our skill sets have have gone way up because of each other, so... Um, if you contact us through uh, my social media is Frogman2155. His is uh, John.Badon, B-A-D-O-N, All right. Jean-Claude Badon, <laughs> um, on Instagram. And uh, hit us up, send us a message. Yeah. And uh, now we are uh, available for mobile training because uh, yeah, I got a lot cool. of requests. Like, hey, I love what you guys are doing in Austin, but shit, I live in Michigan or yeah. you know whatever the deal was. So now we'll come to you. Um, we just need to figure out the business plan of how many people need to get together so that we yeah. can pay for gas and you know all that stuff. So, yeah. and and we'll uh, we'll link all of the contact info in the uh, uh, in the episode notes and all that uh, on all platforms, whether it's iTunes or or YouTube or whatever. So if you, if you do want Clark and uh, John Claude Badon to uh, <laughs> Big Dong to uh, to show up and and fucking rain. Rain some fucking pain on you guys. Um, you know, it's as good as it gets. But uh, anyway, we'll link that up. The one one thing before uh, before we finish this up, I just want to I, I like to ask uh, of most most folks, because uh, I think it's important. It's one of the things I start every day with uh, is being grateful for shit. I, I write down uh, three things that I'm fucking grateful for uh, first thing in, in the in the morning. I think it's important. But uh, I also like to wrap it up with. Uh, just if there's something that kind of encompasses or, or a, a primary thing uh, in your mind that you're most grateful for, what is that? Yeah, for me, it's simple, man. It's faith, family, and friends. Um, definitely, you know, my beliefs have, have got me through some tough times. Uh, family to me is huge. My upbringing with my mom, but currently my wife, Goose, you're out there. Um, but seriously, she's held me. We've been together 14 years. Yeah, uh, She was with me from Israel through all the other shit that we covered. Yeah, um, Being a cop's wife, uh, she's been to several cop funerals with me and, and dealt with other things. And so uh, my wife, my kids obviously have been huge. And then next to that is uh, the brotherhood that I've accumulated, yourself included, that I've just been blessed. Like I, I can't believe I have a seat at the table. I've just... Yeah. I'm just kind of that Forrest Gump dude that stumbles into shit. And uh, so faith, family, and friends, friends being the brotherhood, I've been very lucky. So those are the three things, you know, that I'm grateful for. And I give prayers of thanks to, and just, it's, it's a good thing, man. It's super humbling. Well, that's fucking great, man. I appreciate you sharing that. 
we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, one thing I do want to mention that uh, that we're going to do kind of off off the scenes. We got some beef ribs smoking. Uh, we're going to indulge in there and them. Uh, we are going to include that on the YouTube video. Clark is also, like you mentioned earlier, a guitar connoisseur, as am I. So rest the fuck assured, the two of I are gonna the two the two of the two of I. Jesus Christ, <laughs> it's Latin. I think I think that is uh, it's Hebrew. Maybe you can relate. Uh, is that the two of us are going to uh, strap on our axes and fucking get after it on guitar here in a little bit? Nice. We are going to videotape some of that and throw that on YouTube as well to embarrass the shit out of both of us. It's going to be epic. Rest assured. Yeah. I was trying to get uh, Clark in a bite suit. I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, maybe if I call him out hard enough. Uh, he'll do it but uh but anyway so check out the youtube video we'll have some extras uh, some b-roll type stuff again uh, ribs and, and guitar and all sorts of good shit but most importantly you know for everybody out there listening the the success that that mike drop has had has been absolutely overwhelming uh humbling to say the least the reality of it is is that none of it uh, would exist without your guys' support. And, and I will say this every fucking episode because I do appreciate the hell out of it. I, I do really enjoy doing this. Um, it's something that I, I really didn't expect to enjoy doing to the level in which I do. But uh, I, I will continue to do it as long as you guys want me to. Um, and uh, But more importantly, you know, it's it's the guests like Clark and, and, the, and the preceding guests and ultimately, you guys, the fans, that uh, that makes this possible for us to to be able to do this and bring it to you. So thank you to you guys, uh, all the supporters of, of Mike Drop. Thank you to Clark for coming and and uh, spending the night and sharing your journey with us. It's been uh, been fascinating, and I know people are going to enjoy it. And uh, you know, just just you know, again, ultimately, I, I can't thank uh, everybody enough. One real quick thing. Um, <laughs> In terms of the reviews, especially on iTunes, I've gotten some some fucking hilarious ones uh, that I, I will read at some point. But uh, I am going to hold a contest where uh, there's been been a number of funny ones. Um, <laughs> if you, uh, we're, we're going to do a contest basically uh, between now and when the next episode drops, um, is to uh, whoever can come up with with what I view as the funniest. It's got to be funny. Like it can't just be smart ass <laughs> or whatever. Uh, or, or, you know, blowing smoke. I'm not interested in having smoke blown, but, uh, just, you know, funny ones. There's been some hilarious ones. If you, uh, come up with, uh, you know, the, whatever the funniest thing you can come up with, uh, we're going to have a, like a Tricos package that'll be a book, t-shirt, coin, and some other good shit in it. Uh, you know, sign stuff and whatever that, uh, whoever comes up with, uh, the one that has me laughing the most uh, in the next two weeks is going to get that, uh, that Tricos gift package. So, uh, go on there. Uh, rate it, review it, subscribe to it, the whole ball of wax, and uh, and we'll give some good shit away here. But uh, anyway, Clark, my man, appreciate the fuck out of you coming. It's been uh, it's been awesome. Looking forward to the rest of the night. That isn't going to be on YouTube. I <laughs> yeah, uh, hope not. <laughs> yeah, that'll be on PornTube. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for everybody uh, for listening. Uh, until next time. Uh, we will see you shortly, and uh, as always, this is Mike Drop. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games, so join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary, we were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumboCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumboCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.